Ladies and gentlemen, Nitro is on the air, and you are looking outside of the Civic Coliseum in Knoxville, Tennessee. The site of Nitro, the NWO has arrived. U.S. champion, tag team champions, world heavyweight Hollywood champion, sweet Eric Bischoff, master of the universe, trillionaire Ted. We are on a roll, man. Liz looking sweet. Good, Liz. I like Bubbling up, bubbling up with suckers. I'm talking about WCW and the four-horned, crippled, red-headed stepchild. Former Roddy Roddy Piper. I say, let's go in and devastate him some more. Man, what you gave him last night? Oh, this isn't enough. So much fun. Stronger than ever, man. We're stronger than ever. Good. Everybody, big win last night. The NWO titles, world titles, U.S. titles. What's left, Hollywood? We got it all. We got it all, man. Where are we going? To the top. To the very top. I like it, man. NWO belt. Firmly intact, Hollywood at the helm. You're talking about the NWO belt, right? You see this right here on the belt, right there, boss. Whoa, whoa, whoa. let me you stop you that? right now. Let me stop you right now. We're all a family. We're all blood. We're all brothers and sister. The thing is, when you mess with Hollywood, you don't drop the ball. No. And, and the thing is, though, we're blood. We're all blood. And even though you drop the ball, we prove the point to the whole world that even if we stutter step a little bit, we're so powerful because of the blood, the bond. They can't stop us. Okay, okay, just say for harmonious sake, okay, I dropped the ball. You did. That's fine. Bumble I Ruski. dropped the point. Bumble. Here's Bumble the point. I, uh... Here's the point I want to make. You told me that if I won World War III, I went through 60 Sweet. athletes. Sweet, big Top big athletes in the world. And a fine job you did. Yeah. For one thing, yeah. I want a shot at the NWO World Heavyweight Championship. You got it, you I got want it. the gold. You got it, you got it. Here's it's the deal. all in the family. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. stop, Quiet, stop. Man. It's Quiet. all in the family. Let me explain it to you. You guys know the deal. We know. You know the we deal. Know. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. I told you, everything I told you is true. You go out and devastate 60 men with the help of the brothers. It's all in the family. Yes. And then you get your title shot. It's all the truth. But the thing is... The title shot is a buy. That means we got more time to go to LA and party, more time to make nice. more deals. Another movie, more time, another more movie. movies. Don't and worry. the deal is, you're not exactly. the enemy. I love you, man. Don't worry. You're not the enemy. You bought us some time. Your title shot is a buy for us. We're not fighting over this thing. And as long as the belt stays in the family, we're exactly. cool. Right. Take care of business. One one Take care of business. I can't have the chance to be the lead dog. Is this what you're telling me? Yeah, pretty much, cool pretty down, much, cool right? down, cool down, man. You That's know, you're missing the point. Team, Here's the deal. I told you, as long as the belt is within the NWO family, everything's cool. As long as the belt's on me. You understand Look, that? Man, you he, understand that? You I'm Hollywood. He's going to run with it, man. Here's you the fumble. deal. We'll block. The ball, you block. Here's the deal. Well, hold on, big man. Here's the deal. You stutter step, you fumble, you drop the ball. Don't make the mistake of dropping the ball again. No. Don't I embarrass me again. You hey, drop the hey, ball. Get that camera out. Get that. Get that out of here. Get it out of here. Enough.
Tony Schiavone, the living legend, Larry Zabisco. We are strapped in for our number one. Regardless of what you just heard, yes, Hulk Hogan still has the belt. But last night, in front of a capacity crowd in Nashville at Starcade 1996, in the biggest event this sport has ever seen, Rowdy Roddy Piper defeated Hollywood Hulk Hogan. Yeah, forget the remarks of uh, Hollywood. The man who didn't drop the ball is Roddy Roddy Piper. There is a crack the size of the Nile River in the foundation of the New World Order. That's compliments of Rowdy Roddy Piper. You know, Rowdy Roddy Piper, this was an issue. This was a one-time shot. Welcome to where the big boys play. Welcome to 20 years of Nitro. Our chronological breakdown of World Championship Wrestling's flagship show, where each episode is viewed, reviewed, analyzed, and categorized as we compile an audio anthology of our tour along the southern front of Wrestling's Monday Night Wars. I am your host, Tim Root, and with me off in his own secluded bunker is my social distancing colleague, Dave Amantorp. How are... What an insane question to even uh, ask, but how are you doing this week, Dave? I was, I was wondering if you're going to ask that, and I'm like, I'm like, hey, you know what? All things considered, not too bad. Not really not too bad. I, I imagine that there are lots of people that will be listening that really can't answer that, like, uh, as, as they have been able to answer that every week. I know it's really uh, been very, very difficult for almost everyone on the planet you know, for the last uh, yeah. weeks here. But um, I mean, right now my my job at Barnes Noble is on hiatus until like question mark. So that's, right. of, I mean, that's obviously concerning. But um, I mean, other than that, I mean, I'm healthy. Um, uh, I mean, the thing is, it's, it's like you, you don't know if you're like a carrier or not. So right. When I say I'm healthy, that might not might not be true as far as I know. <laughs> right. So uh, taking all that into consideration, I'm doing pretty okay still. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've I've had the same crazy week that a lot of people have. I'm working from home full time now. Uh, I feel very grateful to be in a position where I'm able to do that. And and just um, God, my hat goes off, my heart goes out, uh, just all, all the thanks in the world to everyone who is working what, you know, an essential job where they, they are out there still getting, you know, out into a workplace, be it, um, working at a grocery store or certainly first responders, uh, uh, doctors, nurses, anything like that. My wife, uh, she's not a doctor or nurse. She's a, she's a nuclear medicine technologist. She does a lot of different kind of imaging, but she works in a hospital in uh, a major metropolitan area. So, you know, my family, um, we we certainly firsthand know the risks that everyone is, is going through. Uh, and it's just going to suck. And, um, we you know, we didn't talk ahead of time about how much we, we talk about this stuff. But I'm of the opinion, uh, certainly we got to acknowledge it and, and say that it sucks. But I'd, I'd love to just move on with Nitro because my mind has dwelt so much with this shit that, like, let's uh, – it'd be nice for a couple hours to think about something else. Yeah, absolutely. I I have no problem with that. I feel like just the couple minutes there, I think, kind of addresses it as it needs to be addressed anyway. Um, if you want to be talking about the, the you know coronavirus, uh, there are other podcasts that can cover that for you. This one is not about the coronavirus, so it's about uh, <laughs> some year old uh, wrestling programs, and that's what we're going to focus on. <laughs> 
Now, before we do get into today's show, I do want to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter at 20 Years of Nitro. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash 20 Years of Nitro. And of course, you can email the show at 20 Years of Nitro at gmail.com. Um, I also just wanted to make a quick mention here is I am now uh, using my own microphone uh, for my for my place. It is called the uh, the Blue Snowball Ice. It is a is a Skype certified uh, microphone, and just by hearing this, you can you can tell that it is a, a high quality microphone. So maybe when we um, put this online, if people are are looking for their own microphones to do their own podcasts, this is one that I can definitely recommend. Is one that works really well. And it's it's fairly um, easy on the wallet, isn't it, compared to a lot of the other options? Yeah. Um, I mean, I got this right after Christmas. Uh, you had recommended it, and it was on sale at the time. It was like $55 or something like that. Yeah. I, I can't say exactly what it, it costs right now, but I know that it was on Amazon, and I got it within like two days. Um, I mean, obviously, shipping is going to be a little bit um, hectic nowadays, but um, we could certainly, once this um, episode goes up, uh, we could provide a, a link if someone is interested in looking into a microphone that they, at least they know someone has used it and can recommend it because this one was really easy. I just, you know, plugged it in, got it running. And from what I can tell, it's a really nice quality. Yeah, it sounds a lot better than the Blue Yeti we had you using before. Um, I think it's a noticeable improvement. And uh, we are not getting we're we're not on the payroll of the Blue Snowball people. No, no, I'm not, getting, <laughs> I'm not getting a dime for mentioning that. I just thought that, you know, for my position before I had a microphone, that's what I would want to hear is I want to hear someone using a microphone and recommending it. So I have a better idea of what the quality is like and how it, the user experience is like. So yeah. I think this is a good one, not only for the quality, but also just for maybe if you're not like so super technically sound, you just plug it in and it goes. I mean, that's all you need to do. All right. Well, today is December 30th, 1996, and we are coming to you live from the Knoxville Civic Coliseum in Knoxville, Kentucky. This venue was the home of Smoky Mountain Wrestling until it folded last year. Tonight, Nitro is in the building for these 4,021 fans who paid a total gate of $49,321. This is the 68th episode of WCW Monday Nitro. It's the night after Starcade 1996, and we are ready to bid 1996 adieu and begin the build towards January 25th, NWO sold out. Yeah, and um, it'll be interesting. I don't, I, I don't have an idea as far as how they'll hype it up. My guess is that they will do like, um, like a, a reluctant hype up from the announcers. Maybe they have like disdain in their voices while they're still hyping up a pay-per-view um, because it is supposed to be just an NWO sanctioned uh, wrestling pay-per-view. Right. But, Interesting to see if, if they play off the theme of that as they're trying to get matches set up and going for their next pay-per-view. As always, Tony Schiavone welcomes us to the show, but we are not inside the arena for once. Instead, we open in the parking lot where two stretch limousines arrive. Out of both limousines comes the NWO, uh, the full complement for once. We get Bagwell, Norton, everybody's here. Hollywood Hogan celebrates the NWO's titles, and they admire Liz for a moment. Hogan warns all the suckers in WCW and the red-headed stepchild Roddy Piper, who he claims to have devastated last night. They celebrate last night's big wins and having the world and U.S. title. Of course, they don't have the U.S. title, even the physical belt anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, it was DiBiase who was listing that as a title they had, so I think he just forgot 
that they don't have it anymore. Like, they don't have the belt like they used to. They Definitely none of them are the champion. So I think he just screwed that up. The only thing is they should have the belt because they took it from Eddie Guerrero last night. Oh, okay. They should physically have it to some degree because they stole it. And but I- none of them are holding it. It's not like Vincent's in the, you know, in the shot holding the belt or anything. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I know it is kind of still playing off that whole idea that they, I mean, I don't know if they're going to act like that that the champion's not like like a legitimate champion until they face whoever the NWO US champion is. Because I know that it was like, the weird thing is it was kind of the giant that was going around with it. And as you can tell, uh, things are a little bit different between the NWO and the giant at this moment. Right, yeah, yeah, we'll get into that right now. As uh, they're just kind of standing there muttering until finally Nash, like, prompts the giant into saying his lines. He's like, giant, you look like you have something to say. Do you? (laughs) So the giant goes up to Hogan and points at the championship belt, which uh, Hogan won from the giant back in August. The giant points out that it still says the giant on the nameplate. Hogan says, hey, we're all a family, and even though the Giant dropped the ball last night, the NWO still proved something to the whole world. The blood bond of the NWO can't be stopped. The Giant says that Hogan promised him that if he won the Battle Royal at World War III, which he did, he would get a title shot. The Giant wants that title shot, but Hogan casually shrugs him off, saying, hey, it's in the family. Hogan says the Giant's title shot is a buy, which I think he intends to mean that, like, the NWO... We'll just hold on to the title shot in case Hogan loses it, and then they'll cash it in. I that, think that's what he means. That's like the impression I get, and I think he's trying to make it as uh, succinct, succinct as possible. But like calling it a buy does not make sense. Right. That the be, giant is not. I mean, that'd be like saying, "Oh, upcoming at this pay per view, the giant should begin his title match." So then it's an automatic retain. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah sort of buy it and i don't think the giant's really looking at it that way (laughs) the giant is not happy to be denied this chance uh, to be the lead dog hogan reiterates that the belt is in the family and everything is cool and warns the giant not to embarrass him again dibiase decides that's enough of the nwo's dirty laundry being filmed as he shoves the camera away and we go to our opening credits I, I thought that segment, it so, like I described it rather short, it seemed to go on forever, and they said the same things over and over again. Yeah, yeah. We're also, I mean, we're dealing with um, with Hogan, who likes to repeat lots and lots of stuff. Also, right. it feels like he needs to carry a conversation with the Giant, then that just means he repeats stuff more and more. Um, and it also doesn't help that he is also interrupting the Giant when he has something to say. Uh, so it becomes a very one-sided thing where Hogan kind of emphasizes several times over that it that the title shot is like that the giant still has it, but he just has to use it at some other time. But it's yeah. also, it's also really weird because the giant's like, "Hey, you promised me I get this title shot if I won the battle royal," because also that was the point of the battle royal. Yeah, you know, like it's not Hogan that owes him the title shot. Like WCW says, he's earned the title shot anyway. Yeah. Yeah, and that comes up later in the show. Uh, there's a similar moment where, like, he's demanding a title shot as if he needs Hogan's approval for something that he has by virtue of winning that pay-per-view match. It, it really doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, I was also going to say, just um, from the since the previous night, it looks like the Giant got a considerable amount of sleep because he, yeah, he looks a lot. <laughs> he looks a lot more 
awake and just rested and yeah that he did the night before maybe maybe um losing that match kind of like took a lot of uh (laughs) tony and larry welcome us to the show and make it clear to those who hadn't yet heard hulk hogan actually lost to roddy piper last night in spite of the way he was making it seem in the open the announcers celebrate piper's success but bemoan that he's not a part of wcw and thus not the leader they so badly need We see some stills of the Giants match against Lex Luger and how Sting came down and whispered in both men's ears. Tony calls Luger's win one of the most emotional in the history of our sport. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of reactions to that particular match that are really over the top (laughs) during this show. Oh, Canada plays and out comes the amazing French Canadians along with Colonel Robert Parker. Jacques demands that the music be cut and if all the rednecks in attendance would please stand and sing the most beautiful national anthem in the world. He and uh, PCO really belted out this time and Tony and Larry make fun of them until Public Enemy's music cuts them off and out come Rocco and Johnny. Tony runs down the card and tonight we'll see Harlem Heat, uh, The Faces of Fear, we'll see Glacier versus Disco Inferno, Chris Jericho versus Chris Benoit, Dean Malenko, and Tony says, the little guys are here. Uh, he, he, Tony is very excited for a minis match featuring some little people wrestlers from Mexico. He's just pleased as punch. I think at one point he's like, we're going to see the Mexican midget wrestlers from Mexico. And he, you can just, he says it with like six exclamation points. He's so excited. <laughs> uh, of course, when he says the little guys are here, Larry goes, Rey Mysterio is here never missing a chance to bury his own roster. Yeah. Um, I know that there's a bunch of these matches that people are excited for, but when I heard that Glacier versus the Disco Inferno, yeah, that's what I got excited for. Like that's right. such a, a fascinating, interesting matchup between those two, because it's like, even when Disco Inferno loses, it's like a big showing for the Disco Inferno. And he's going against Glacier, who, when he wins, is a big showing for Glacier. So it'll be interesting to see, like, who gets the spotlight in that matchup, even though it'll probably just be, like, a couple minutes long. Right. Uh, Larry is also really enthusiastic about the minis match coming up. He says that he, like, I forget exactly what he says, but he's just, he finds it very amusing. And he says that he really likes their little masks. (laughs) He, like, enjoys the fact that they make smaller masks for mini luchadors smaller people so they need they require smaller masks than normal size people (laughs) (laughs) well lottie lottie dave amantorp likes to party and here he is to call all of our opening tag team action all right well uh it should be noted that this is actually a rematch from last monday nitro in which the amazing french canadians won by disqualification when public enemy used part of a table which accidentally broke on carl olette uh, the barricades at ringside are considerably further back than normal, which I just kind of noticed right away. It struck me as unusual, but I, be- I it doesn't seem like it really meant anything. I'm just, I just, maybe they just set them up differently. I don't know. But there just seems to be an, a, a lot of uh, extra space uh, at ringside this week. I wonder if, you know, like I said, this place was the home of Smoky Mountain. I wonder if there was just a particular way that they set the arena up for Smoky Mountain and so like wrestling was back in town and they just set it up to those you know those specifications just totally throwing out a yeah speculation I don't, there 
Um, it'll be interesting. I'm, I'm interested to see if it happens next week or if it's just a one-off. But like, they are they're further back. Like, it's, I think it's kind of noticeable. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now, and and I think you're definitely right. They are a good several feet back from where they normally are. Um, so the the match begins with Public Enemy being attacked on the apron, as all classic tag team matches do. They start off just whenever action starts, without all the wrestlers being in the ring or anything like that. <laughs> Whatever goes. There's little resemblance of a tag team match as all four men duke it out, and we end up with Public Enemy hitting a few double-team maneuvers on Carl Olette before the amazing French Canadians scurry out of the ring. Uh, they are consulted by Colonel Robert Parker, who Larry Zabisco refers to as the Earl Flynn Parker due to his newly grown pencil-thin mustache. Uh, I should note here that Earl Flynn was actually an Australian actor during the Golden Age of Hollywood, and of course had a pencil-thin mustache of his own. I'd, I actually kind of do- dove into a little bit of uh, Earl Flynn because I recognized the name. Yeah. Uh, Earl Flynn died on October 14th, 1959 at the age of 50 due to, and I quote, myocardial infarction due to coronary thrombosis and coronary atherosclerosis with fatty isn't that just a isn't that just a heart attack it yeah it's pretty much a heart attack and also his liver is all fucked up because he drank a lot ah um also he died in the arms of his 17 year old girlfriend beverly odlin (laughs) co-starred in the 1959 classic cuban rebel girls which (laughs) which was released on christmas two and a half months after he died He's uh, certainly most famous for playing Robin Hood. I know that was kind of his biggest his biggest part. Yes, yeah, he was in the uh, Adventures of Robin Hood, which is like in the late '30s or something like that. But he was also known for having the pencil thin mustache. And at this point, both Larry and Tony agree that the ladies love pencil thin mustaches. <laughs> I'm sure that like Parker's is also just like mascara. It's not a. I don't think that's even a real pencil thin mustache. That's makeup. We might have to investigate that if he's on next week too, if he still has it. <laughs> yeah. If it's improved or if it's uh, if it's mysteriously gone. Uh, Public Enemy thwarts the amazing French Canadians' attempts to return to the ring, but when they decide to head back to the locker room and forget the whole affair, Public Enemy chases them down and hits them with their discarded Canadian flags. Uh, there's kind of a funny moment where Jacques Rougeau has his hands up in preparation of being hit in the stomach with a flag. And there's like a second too long before it actually happens. So <laughs> just kind of signaling it. Oh, yeah. I, I'm literally watching it right now. That's very funny. Public Enemy placed Jacques on the table that they set up at ringside. But he dives out of the way as the two go through their own table, courtesy of the drive-by. Jacques then throws Rocco Rock in the ring. And the amazing French Canadians hit the Quebec crash. And just like that, get the pinfall victory. So it was a very, very quick match. Um, it was a very public enemy style match in which it was, uh, you know, disqualifications are pretty lax. Um, and I'm not really sure what we gained out of this, to be honest. Yeah, my notes say, dumb match where nothing happened and then it ended. Whatever. <laughs> right. Uh, I don't, I mean... I, 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 again, I got nothing. I don't know if they're trying to uh, make the Amazing French Canadians a little bit more impressive for a potential little tag team title shot. I don't know. I don't know where this is going. Yeah, uh, the the weirdest thing that stands out for me in the match is there's a moment where 
Larry happens to say, I forget what he's trying to say about the Canadians, but he says, these men are from Quebec. And then coincidentally, right after that, Parker is trying to, like, whip up his the troops, you know? Mm-hmm. And he just screams at them, remember where you're from! And Pierre yells out, Toronto! <laughs> which, which is right after, but this is the weirdest part about it. So that makes Zabisco look like an idiot because he just said they're from Quebec and Pierre just yelled that he's from Toronto. I looked it up. PCO is from Quebec. He's from the suburbs of Montreal. He's not from Toronto. So I don't know why he yelled that. It was very weird. <laughs> maybe it, maybe it's cooler sounding to be from Toronto. Maybe, but I don't think, uh, you know, I think, I think French Canadians are everywhere, but like Quebec is certainly the province that like houses the majority of them. Right. So it was, it was, I don't, I would love to hear what was going through everyone's mind. I just, I don't know why that happened. After a commercial, we come back to some generic Japanese music as out comes Jushin Thunder Liger. We see some stills from his match last night against Ray, where Liger was victorious. Out next is the J-Crown champion and current WCW Cruiserweight champion, Ultimo Dragon, alongside his manager, Sonny Ono. Dragon only has the cruiserweight belt with him tonight, as that's the only one of his nine titles that are on the line. These men will face each other again five days from now in the big New Japan uh, Pro Wrestling show at the Tokyo Dome on January 4th. Yeah, and I believe that's for all nine belts, including the WCW title. Yeah, I should uh, try to watch that match, since I've got certainly the time. We could maybe talk about it in the uh, in our Worldwide episode. I, I also, I believe that we've mentioned, at least on one of our previous episodes, that we were going to do that. Ah, well, we'll continue to going to be doing that. <laughs> right. Dragon attacks Liger with kicks to the leg before, during, and after the bell. Liger tries a back body drop, but Dragon flips and lands on his feet. Off the ropes, both men clothesline each other and neither goes down. They repeat the spot, then go for it a third time, but this time Dragon ducks the clothesline, only to rebound off the ropes into a tilt-a-whirl backbreaker. Liger puts Dragon up into the surfboard, but Dragon won't submit, and Liger lets him go. A handspring back elbow by Liger gets a two-count. A somersault Senton gets another. Liger gets a powerbomb and kicks at Ono outside the ring a bit. Dragon gets caught in another tilt-a-whirl backbreaker that he's supposed to reverse into one of his own, but the smoothness of the reversal gets a little botchy. Sad to say. Yeah. Still, I was going to say that um, it really feels like these guys are trying to go like full throttle. I think maybe because they realize they don't have a lot of time out in the ring there. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like they're going a bit too fast for themselves. I think that's probably what happened here. Yeah. So some moves are not they're They're just not that crisp. And it just seem, it, it does seem like they might need to, even though they only have a little bit of time, might need to slow it down just a bit. Liger heads to the outside to regroup, and Dragon catches him with a tope suicida. Dragon whips Liger into the rail and kicks him in the abs. Back in the ring, Dragon goes to the top for a big splash, but Liger gets his boots up into Dragon's face. Liger then hits a brainbuster for two. Liger gets a superplex as Tony mentions their match coming up this weekend, and Larry puts over Liger's strength and risk. And Larry puts over Liger's strength and risk taking despite his recent bout with a brain tumor. Dragon gets Liger caught sitting on the top turnbuckle and hits a hurricanrana, followed by the Dragon suplex for the quick victory. Dragon is bleeding from the mouth, but he still is the WCW Cruiserweight Champion. Yeah, I did not did not catch when he got that, but he definitely is bleeding like considerably from the mouth because there's kind of it's dripping down his chin. 
Yeah, he comes off the top rope for a big splash, and Liger gets his boots up, and I think he just actually brought his jaw into one of Liger's feet. That's my guess, anyway. Um, oh, I'm, I was just going to say that the uh, Tokyo Dome match is just for the J-Crown. It's not for the WCW Cruiserweight title as well. Oh, interesting. And also- That makes me think that uh, Liger is going to win because, you know, they Dragon is more of a WCW mainstay. So it would make sense, like, if they're going to transfer the J-Crown, they would need to keep the Cruiserweight belt on Dragon. Yeah, and this, and that match is, like, it's, uh, it's 18 minutes long, so... Oh, nice. I was... Yeah, my notes for the one here on Nitro say that was a good match. It just could have used about 25 more minutes. Oh, right. So, I mean, I, I already saw enough here where I'm like, oh, if they get like a good amount of time where they could move at a regular pace and have plenty of time to tell a story, like it's going to be outstanding. So I'm looking forward to, I, I thought that was enough to get me excited for their New Japan match. So in a way, it, this was successful for me. Yeah, absolutely. The Dungeon of Doom music plays after a commercial, and Tony tells us that we're about to see the first strap match in Nitro history. Now, this is supposed to be Conan defending the honor of the Dungeon of Doom against the man who sold them out to join the NWO, Big Bubba. Mm -hmm. Only Bubba doesn't come out, and come to think of it, he was not in the NWO cold open. So I said, you know, that it was like the full complement of the NWO, but his absence here made me realize, oh yeah, he was the one guy who wasn't there at the beginning either. Yeah, and also, uh, he doesn't get the NWO theme. He gets his Big Bubba theme. Uh, I don't know that this is Big Bubba theme. I think this might be the debut of the uh, NWO B team theme. Oh. Well, I mean, that would make sense if that was, like, if anyone knew what that meant at that point. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I think this might be the first. I think they're finally starting to draw a clear line between, like, all right, these six guys are cool enough to use the NWO theme. These guys, we are in the NWO, but we don't want to create that necessary association in the fans' mind. We don't want them to hear the music, and then out comes fucking Big Bubba. <laughs> well, I mean, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be kind of like the point, though? Isn't that, isn't that like a, a cheap way to get like the fans excited? <laughs> in a healthy company where guys aren't looking out for number one at all times, sure. Yeah. Not in WCW. <laughs> right. <laughs> also, I mean, I would be wondering, like, why Big Bubba is even in the NWO in the first place. But, I mean, right. we're kind of beyond that point now. So, he doesn't come out, and there's a long delay. Yeah. Like, a delay so long that it almost makes me wonder if what happens next was a shoot and not, like, the plan. I don't, I don't believe that's the case, but... It just takes forever, and then finally out comes M. Wall Street. Wall Street gets in the ring and grabs a mic. Cut the music! Hey, Conan, I just got off the phone with Big Bubba, and he can't make it here tonight. Oh, that's convenient. But he wanted me to give you a message that he's not afraid of you or that strap, and real soon he's going to get a chance to prove it. So Mr. Wall Street is the messenger. He's more than a messenger. And Wall Street attacks Conan from behind. He's going to hook on that strap, and here we go. Larry, like Wall Street says that Bubba can't make it here tonight. No reason given at all. But he says that Bubba isn't afraid of Conan or the strap match, and soon he will prove it. Yes, I had soon in quotation marks. <laughs> Conan, for no reason, turns his back, and Wall Street clobbers him and straps himself up. 
Mark Curtis sees two men in the ring attached to the strap and decides, good enough, and calls for the bell to declare this an official match. Speaking of good enough, here to call all the action is our own Dave Amantorp. Well, all that introduction for the match to start, that was most of my notes for this match. <laughs> so I have about a paragraph here. Yeah. It starts off, anyway, this is a dumb and ugly match. The end comes with Wall Street dragging Conan from behind in a chokehold with the strap. Both men slap three of the four corners, one after the other, with Wall Street not uh, being aware that Conan's also slapping the corners. And when they get to the last turnbuckle, Wall Street stops Conan, clobbers him, which causes him to fall back and hit the fourth corner for the win. This match made Wall Street look stupid and not know how the match works. And also, Conan does not look prepared to have any further strap matches in the future. Strap matches are terrible. They always are. This one followed the pattern that every single one always follows. One guy's hitting them and doesn't realize the other guy's hitting them too. Um, Like you said, Wall Street looks like an idiot. And Conan looks like a guy who couldn't beat, like, the jobbiest jobber on the planet. Right. Couldn't beat Wall Street. So... Well, cause the thing is, when when Wall Street comes down and does an interview, this is Wall Street saying, look, I am below Big Bubba, okay? I'm right. his dirty work. So you're facing someone that's not as good as the guy you're feuding with in strap matches. And you, I hand you the victory because I was handedly beating you up until this point. But yeah. There's, you know, I, I mean, I get... I could get maybe a bit of the storyline of Big Bubba um, trying to avoid having this strap match until he has to. Like, right. could be a bit of a story with that. Maybe they're holding off until the NWO pay-per-view for them to have the strap match. But the way that this is delivered, no one looks good in it. Uh, like I said, Conan does not look like he can beat anyone in these matches now. And also, M. Wall Street is, like, just the dumbest guy. And also the the fact that the referee just decides this match is a match. Like, yeah. where does that come from? Yeah, that was very, very funny to me. Like, if you just think about this as a real sport, it's just amazing. I was also going to note, because um, when Wall Street came down to the ring, he did not get, like, the little um, Chiron that said his name. And at this point, I was like, I don't know what, he's call- what they're calling him now. So I, I went to one website. One website said it was Michael Wall Street. And I went to another website, and that website said it was Mr. Wall Street. And another one said it was M. Wall Like, no one had a good idea of what his official, like, full name is at this point. And I don't think WCW even cared, to be honest. I know the, the last time he was on the show, it was definitely M. Wall Street. I remember that. Now, whether that still is it, who knows? Yeah, because I was looking at uh, people that were doing recaps at the time. Like, yeah. not like uh, retro ones, but ones at the time. And everyone's kind of like, we don't really know what he's being called. We know the letter M is involved somewhere, but that's about it. I mean, this is way too much thought into uh, Wall Street. Yeah. So we can also just move on to. Yeah, the last thing I want to say about this match is, I guess it is notable in that it is the second ever loss for the NWO. Oh, sure. Or I guess uh, the third, because you had, yeah, you had Giant, you had Hogan, and now (laughs) Giant, Hogan, and Wall Street, the three NWO losers. After that, the NWO music plays and outstruts Hogan and Bischoff. If last night's defeat is dragging on their minds, they certainly don't show it as they are all smiles and smug goofs. 
Tony and Larry are suitably disgusted. Bischoff introduces Hogan as the current reigning NWO champion. Introduce oh the current reigning world heavyweight champion, Hollywood Hulk Hogan. Is he the man or what? What life? I think the answer is what? You know, Hollywood, it was magic last night, my man. It was magic. You beat Roddy Piper right in the middle of the ring. I love that, man. When did you know you really had him? That's a lot. Well, you know something, Eric Bischoff? When Roddy, Roddy Piper had the guts to show up, I knew right then I had him. And when he brought that little kid of his and made his son drop down on his knees and beg, please, Mr. Hogan, don't beat my dad up too long. I knew right then and there I had to have some mercy. It got to me too, man. It really did. But Hulk, in the middle of the ring, you proved you are the icon that everybody in this building has always known you are. You are the man. Give it up for the Hulkster. Come on, give it up. Yeah, let's boo him out of the building. You know, when I came to town today, everybody said, Hollywood, you are the man. Hollywood, we can't believe how you destroyed Rowdy Roddy Piper in Hollywood. The Hollywood rules shirt is so cool, man. I'm not going to take it off tonight because, yes, Hollywood, you are our hero. But you know what's really disappointing, Hulkster, is the man, I mean, he's like Haley's Comet. It's once in a lifetime. He came, he got beat, and now he's gone. You know, I'm trying to be very, very light on the situation at hand, but to come in for one shot and one shot only, when you lose and you're beaten by Hollywood, it's not a disgrace. But the brother made a lot of scratch by hanging on to my coattails. And the bottom line is to come in for one night, take a beating and leave. Now I lost a lot of respect for him because you know what? He's the type of real coward that underneath that dress, there ain't nothing happening. And you'll never see him again. All right, let's have a moment of silence, please, in memory of Roddy Roddy Piper. Nah, heck with that. Heck with that. Give it up for the man. This is the man. How about some music from the back? How about some music? Say goodbye to the people, host. Yo, I would run for president support that I have here, but I sure as heck don't want to take a cut in pay. Ooh, never do that. Bischoff starts off by explicitly stating that last night was magic because Hogan defeated Piper right in the middle of the ring. Hogan says he knew that he had Piper all night, but when Piper's kid begged Hollywood not to beat up his dad too bad, he knew he had to show some mercy. Now, but, they... they... This is going to be mentioned a few times during the yeah. show. Was that a thing I missed or 
do I did I forget that he confronted one of his kids during the no, match? No, no, never. This completely made up. It's completely made up, and I think he even made it up in some of his promos at Starcade. He's just been saying that the whole time. There's there's no truth to it. Okay, it, and it's it's not part of an angle. He's just it's just what Hogan has decided to harp about. Bischoff says Hogan proved that he was the icon everyone knew that he was and asked the crowd for cheers, but receives mostly boos. Hogan says when he came to Knoxville, everyone told him he was the man and they couldn't believe how he destroyed Piper and that his Hollywood rule shirt is so cool, man. Bischoff says Piper only shows up once in a lifetime like Haley's Comet and now that he's gone, oh, and now that he came and got beat, he's gone again. Hogan says that he's trying to go light on Piper, but he doesn't have much respect for Roddy to come in for just one shot, lose, and make a bunch of money riding on Hulk's coattails. Hogan claims that Piper is a real coward and that under his dress, there's nothing happening. Bischoff calls for a moment of silence, but then decides against it, asks everyone to give it up for the man, and then after the music is already st- and then after the music has already started, he demands the music play. Hmm. Hogan claims with the support he has, he could run for president, but he'd never want to take the cut and pay. This is, uh, as far as I can remember, the earliest mention of his bullshit about running for president that he did for quite a while. Uh-huh. So that that's the first time I remember him dropping that idea. I feel like this is a really good heel thing for him to do. It's just to consistently right. suggest like the complete opposite happened the day before and being like, right. Piper's gone. Piper is not here to t- say otherwise. So I'm just going to show up and say, I just beat the shit out of Roddy Piper until his kid begged off. And I, I don't even know what, yeah. the, what the end story of that is. Does he, in his mind, after that, after he tells him to stop, does the match just end at that point? Or what happens? <laughs> to hear what, what the rest of that match is. And- I, well, I think the story he's trying to tell is that it happened before the match. That, like, backstage, Piper's Piper's kid came to him. So during the match, Hogan could have beat Piper even worse than he did, but he chose not to, is I think what he's implying. Yeah, that makes sense. That's why he, he was able to leave with, like, his life, basically. Yeah. Uh, to, close, to, uh, to close, Hogan, despite earlier claims that he would never take off his Hollywood Rule shirt tonight, he tears off his Hollywood Rule shirt. God, he did it again. <laughs> As we head to commercial, Tony says that they'll have a response to Hogan and Eric's claims on the other side of the break. When we come back, the Dungeon of Doom music is playing again as Tony and Larry attempt to dissect Hogan and Bischoff's lies and assure us that Piper won and Hogan and Bischoff are liars who think you're stupid. (laughs) Out comes Kensuke Sasaki along with Sonny Ono who is waving a Japanese flag. Right here in our country, Dave. (laughs) Right. Well, uh... (laughs) The other thing is, um, I think since we last recorded, that a lot of uh, truths about Sonny Ono have come to light as well, as far as him being very manipulative. It's when any Japanese talent tries to come into the country to do any sort of live show, he interferes and tries to get stuff for himself. Yeah, that whole, uh, yeah, the issues with him and uh, Game Changer Wrestling. That's a, (laughs) boy, oh boy. Yeah, it's like... uh, it it's like they like WCW kind of fed him this persona so long that he started buying into it himself. <laughs> or or maybe Sonny Ono was just a reflection of what the guy is in real life. I don't know. Yeah, who knows? That's uh God. 
but also i was just gonna say it's it's very because like uh i've watched lots of new japan over the last like you know two or three years and that's just like stuff that's nowadays i don't really do a lot of delving into their archives so i've seen a lot of kintsuki sasaki as an older man yeah so it's just really weird to see him like in his i don't know is he like in his late 30s mid to late 30s at this point it's just it's really it's a little bit like oh that's right you know he, he was a young he was a young stuff <laughs> yeah there's no sign as they come to the ring of the issues that sasaki and ono were having last night during sasaki white sasaki's wife's match mm-hmm. uh it like it by the way uh since sasaki just turned 30 at this point oh wow okay so he is he is very young he is uh like six years younger than we are now so after the bell these two friggin bulls that's what i have in my note uh (laughs) lock up a few times but neither can get much what but neither can get much of an advantage early then it's time for the big hoss shoulder block no sell trade-off spot where two big guys just run into each other a few times no one's selling eventually they both clothesline each other both go down but then immediately both spring back to their feet the matter of which big boy is the strongest still unsettled, they lock fingers for a test of strength. But Sasaki breaks it off with some kicks to Morris's gut. They trade strikes for a bit, with Morris finally knocking Sasaki over with a couple of headbutts. But he turns his back for a moment and eats a double sledge. Sasaki gets the bigger man up and over for a vertical suplex, and Toadie mentions the friction between Sasaki and Ono last night. Sasaki gets a two count and then starts chopping Morris, who no-sells, and starts laughing up i guess (laughs) morris down sasaki with a clothesline for two a brief chin lock fails to submit the former u.s heavyweight champion so morris charges into sasaki in a corner suddenly tony tells us that eric bischoff has arrived to the broadcast booth and we can hear eric over the pa system we see the booth where eric informs tony and larry that they won't be showing anything tonight because he has the tape he has a case, uh, apparently, with the tape of Starcade 96 in his hand. Yeah. I so love, I guess... <laughs> it's just like, things like that that remind you, like, oh yeah, this is 1996. It would be right. like, on a VHS, and it's like in the in the in the case itself. So he's holding like this big case. <laughs> so I guess that's it, ladies and gentlemen. Eric Bischoff has stolen the only copy of Starcade 96 in existence, and now no one will ever see it. Now, th- this is kind of a point where it's like, um, I feel like it goes back to um, letting the announcers know exactly what's going on and how to react. Yes, yes. Larry keeps going on about, like, there should be more than one copy in, of ex- in existence, which yeah. is like, a valid point, but undermines the whole purpose of the segment. Yeah, it's I, I have the exact same thing in my notes. It kind of, I'm, I'm of two minds. On the one hand, it's... It's nice that they're not treating me like I'm an idiot and they're asking that question. You know what I mean? On the other hand, like, it's definitely Larry being, like, the smartest guy in the room, refusing to play along with the angle so that you know that he's smart. Mm-hmm. So I there's, there's good and bad. They should have figured out – they should have had some dialogue there. Tony should have said to Eric, we'll find another copy, and Eric could have said, like, you know, we've got the other copies on lockdown in the truck right now or something. Or something, or just like Eric Bischoff still is in a position of power in WCW. Yeah, tell him like you're not showing that video. If you want, if you want to keep your job, right, show that video or something. I don't know. It just it's like it is. It's very goofy. 
that he like walks out with the like also why walk out with the tape when someone could like try to grab it from you like Larry's <laughs> right if you wanted to <laughs> meanwhile back in the ring Sasaki is in control and he hits a power slam for a two count he gets a scoop slam and tries for an elbow drop but there's nobody home Morris capitalizes with the no laughing matter and a pin but Ono comes in with the flag now <laughs> Ono misses his cue so he's way too late yeah uh so more like the three count should have happened but instead scott dickinson just sees him coming and calls for the dq even though he should have just given morris the win so he makes sasaki look like a geek he makes he robs morris of a win he should have had it just it sucks uh he was of course pissed and gets his hands on ono but ono shrugs out of his sport coat and then escapes from the ring, pointing at the big brain that made him smart enough to know how to take his jacket off. <laughs> I like it's a small detail, but you brought it up that it's not even a year has passed since uh, Sasaki was the U.S. champion. Right. You figure that like the least they could do was like Tony could just mention it. You know, it just gives him a little bit more credibility as yeah. a guy that's in uh, WWE, especially since one of the big stories from like the night after star K was how well the Japanese wrestlers did in their respective matches. Right. Yeah. Like, and look, here's Sasaki. He was just our second biggest champion just last year, you know? Yep. Um, I mean, I know the idea was like, they wanted to do something in which it would create this, uh, animosity, like further the tension between Sonny Ono and Sasaki. But they also made it look like Sasaki is just a really defeatable guy, too. Yeah. It's Hugh Morris, who really doesn't have much going on. I mean, Hugh Morris's like, role in WWE is just really weird because it's like... It seems like they they will occasionally give him, like, squash matches. Right. You don't get a sense that it's going anywhere, you know? Other- yeah, he's a, he's a guy they definitely could do stuff with, but it's just where is there room for him in the upper mid card and certainly not the upper card. Yeah. Like, he, he's a tough case of exactly what do you do with a guy right now? I suppose you could give him like the TV title since like Regal Regal doesn't need it for one thing. And he's not doing a ton with it right now. Yeah. This feud with Sasaki and Ono could have been a little bit better where it's like, maybe do something where Sasaki um, either gets a win or is about to win and realize that Ono cheated on his behalf, because that would be playing off of what happened the night before. Yeah. Um, something like that. Something that looks makes Sasaki look a little bit more legitimate, so we care that he's feuding with Sonny Ono. Morris has his hand raised, the winner by disqualification, and he tells the camera not to mistake his laughter for weakness, and uh, says, like, Dungeon of Doom 97. Yes. <laughs> I want that like as, like, a spring break t-shirt. yes then it's time for some stills of last night piper uh we see piper with the sleeper on hogan piper with his foot on hogan and piper having his hand raised the announcers call that the still of a thousand words and i don't know why they don't just call it a picture like they just keep saying still it's very it just after a while the word starts to sound weird I think Larry just fucked it up, and then Tony just ran with it. <laughs> we then go to commercial, after which Tony hypes us up for Saturday night, where you can see Malenko versus Guerrero for the United States Championship, and Regal versus Ice Train. Uh, I'm happy that I have a DVD of all the Saturday night 1997 episodes. I'm going to actually, uh, maybe while I'm editing tonight, I'm going to put that on in the background and just have it going. 
just just a side note has nothing to do with this um for because you have new japan world or do you not have that anymore i did i don't think i do i might sign up for it again now that i'm got time on my hands i was just wondering did you did you ever figure out a way so you could watch it on your television or not uh, so the way I can is I can play it via my phone and then sync it to my Apple TV because it's a iPhone that Apple TV has like a way of doing that. Oh, okay. So that's how I do it. Okay. Yeah. I don't, I need to figure out a, a way. Cause like this, uh, this, um, uh, Tokyo Dome show looks really good cause they do a new Japan versus big Japan, um, series of matches. Um, and there's like. A lot like um, Jericho wrestles on there. Uh, to yep. Jer- oh yeah, we we should talk about that. Yeah, like the whole show. Look, I I, I think there's a chance I'll just watch the whole show because the whole show looks really fun. Down to the ring comes Harlem Heat in some all black trunks that I don't know that I've seen before. They looked, they look like something new to me anyway. With them is Sherry. Their opponents tonight will be the Faces of Fear, uh, and these are two teams with very muddled heel face alignment. Like, I'm very confused because Harlem Heat are mostly heels, but they're feuding with Parker and the Canadians, who are definitely, like, more obviously heels. Yeah. And then the Faces of Fear are part of Dungeon of Doom, which is definitely a heel stable, except they're feuding with the NWO, so that sort of makes them baby faces. So I really like watching this match. I mean... I love Harlem Heat, and I like the Faces of Fear, but I'm like, who am I supposed to cheer for right now? I, I'm confused on exactly what, as an audience member, I'm supposed to be feeling, yeah. I guess. And I don't think either of the teams really um, made it obvious in the ring either. Right. Stevie and Meng start off with a lockup and some punches. Tony promotes sold out, claiming uh, this kind of gets to what you were talking about earlier. How are they going to promote sold out? Yeah. Tony promotes it, claiming that he's been forced to thanks to a memo from Eric Bischoff. <laughs> he does say, though, that many WCW athletes will be on that show. Uh, so he's like, you know, you should watch. I don't want you to watch it, but I guess you should. We're going to have a bunch of WCW guys on it. My question for you, Dave, is uh, because this has certainly not been explained in storyline. Why would WCW wrestlers go on the NWO pay-per-view? That is, um, I mean, Eric Bischoff could basically order them to, if he wanted to. I mean, I feel like it's something where they have to emphasize Bischoff's uh, control, like role in WCW still. As yeah. far as like he, he's the one he can like just in theory like, just say that he'll fire them if they don't do it, sort of thing. Um, I mean, I except, don't, I mean, you're, you're you're right. He should have that power, but. The most recent, like, big thing he did was tell everyone they had whatever it was, 30 days or or three weeks, or I forget the time period, to switch over their contracts to NWO contracts. Yeah. That has expired, and there have been no negative consequences for anyone. Right. I mean, I can see that, like, there will be guys that want to go after the titles that the NWO have. Sure. That only fulfills a couple of matches. Um I don't know. I, I, I mean, maybe if they're being paid the same, regardless of if it's an NWO or WCW pay per view, if the money's still good. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't. Yeah. I don't know. I don't feel like that there is like a very simple reason why they would do it, other than like 
Eric Bischoff with the power in WCW still just makes him do it. Both teams get a tag, which earns Barbarian a scissor kick from Booker T and then a Harlem sidekick for a two count. Booker heads to the top rope, but Barbarian kicks out his ankle and Booker is crotched on the top turnbuckle. Barbarian uses this opportunity for a top rope belly-to-belly suplex, a move that I always love when the Barbarian hits. It looks awesome. It just looks devastating. You have this giant guy standing on the ropes throwing you halfway across the ring. What are you talking about his top rope belly-to-belly? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the thing, it's like nine times out of ten, it's like it's on the verge of tragedy too. Yeah, I I've never seen someone get hurt by it, but it always looks like they should. Yeah, and it's like the the ropes are just like shaking under his weight, and like the fact that I don't think a barbarian, like barbarian has never like tripped, but he seems like he's bound. He's like always about to trip or fall right. or something like that. <laughs> but he also is just like there. You have to say about like a, a man with that sort of confidence to take someone like uh, a member of Harlem Heat, like 270 some pounds, and just wing him over his head <laughs> in midair too. It, it it is awesome. Like I feel, I feel like one of the, uh, one of like the many wrestlers that I've grown to appreciate more during this podcast is a barbarian in particular. Yes, I 100% agree with that. Because I think as a kid, it was more like. Yeah, he's all right, but I'm it's like, but Ming's the man, you know. He's sure it's, it's Ming, and is like also kind of awesome, like similar wrestler that he teams with. But now it's kind of like, oh wait, Barbarian was awesome, and he also has like a surprising amount or just like subtle charisma to him, uh, especially like when he gets like all pumped up when he just devastates someone with a power bomb or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, the face is a fear. I feel like as a kid, I did not appreciate him nearly as much as I appreciate him now. In comes Meng, who telegraphs a back body drop. Barbarian definitely thought that they were about to do the back body drop into a power bomb because uh-huh. he just wanders into the ring and stands there behind Meng. Yeah. So when Stevie Ray kicks Meng in the face instead, he just wanders back out to the apron. <laughs> yes. It's very funny. Yeah. Meng gets a backbreaker for two. Meng tries a back body drop again and again gets kicked by Booker. In comes Stevie Ray, who does manage a successful back body drop on Meng. Somehow we are still dealing with Colonel Robert Parker and Sherry, a storyline that goes back well over a year now. Yes. And he comes out to spank Sherry with his riding crop. Uh, I did enjoy Larry. Uh, he, He spanks her in the ass with the crop, and Larry goes, He hit her right in the Bischoff. Uh huh. It's you know what like it's not original or anything, but he says it like right off the dome. It's he didn't have to think about it or like rush to get it in. He he had that one locked and loaded. There and I like because like there's a pause after he says that, and I think that Larry's waiting for um, for Tony to get it. Yeah, yeah. It seems like it just kind of goes over Tony's head. <laughs> but no, like when he said it, I was like, uh, I get it, I get it, oh Larry. <laughs> An infuriated Sherry tackles Parker, and in the background, you can see the amazing French Canadians just sort of standing there watching. By the by, Mark, the, when it's like, um, why are they still continuing with this like feud between these two? You hear the crowd erupt too when she tackles him, and it's like, oh right, the idiots still appreciate it because <laughs> they still because I'm like, how many times have you seen her tackle him? 
Like, yeah, right. Didn't she get like the five minutes in the ring with him? Yes. Yeah. They're just going to keep doing this until Nitro is canceled, I think. Like, it, it feels like it at this point. Mark Curtis, distracted by all the chicanery, misses Stevie Ray hit Meng with a power slam and the cover that should have been the victory. He also misses Jacques Rougeau throw powder in Stevie's eyes. Uh, normally, when wrestlers throw powder, it's like flour. It's, you know, it's it's very, like, white. Yeah. But in this case, it's like charcoal ashes or something. It's black. And it stains the ring, and, like, the next four matches, every guy's back ends up covered in this stuff by the end of the match. It's... Whatever they did was the wrong choice. For for the record, because it does just... It gets mentioned from now on, I refer to it as charcoal, because it seems like... It's like... Like you said, charcoal dust or something like that. And who on earth chose that instead of what they've always used for generations of wrestling? Right. Like, why did they do... Like, that's one where it's like... I would be interested in, in finding out why that decision was made, because it's uh. just... It's like literally a black mark on the rest of the show. So so here's a theory that is not mine. This goes to um, so Brian Alvarez of Figure Four, you know, the Wrestling Observer site or whatever. He has a podcast yeah. with, with two of his buddies. It's usually his friend Vinny. And then they have this other guy, Craig, another friend of his that's on the show sometimes breaking this stuff down. And uh, sometimes I listen because Brian had he had sources inside WCW. So sometimes he gives facts on these nitros that I, I probably wouldn't have heard elsewhere. Um, but they were talking about this match and they were you know speculating why the fuck would they use charcoal? And Craig pointed out like, OK, normally you throw flour into a guy's eyes. Well, if you throw flour into one of Harlem Heat's eyes, the ref is going to notice because it's bright white. So maybe they got charcoal because it would blend in on a black guy's skin tone better. Oh, that is was like... so racist enough that I could imagine that's. I, I could really see somebody, especially like Colonel Robert Parker, being the one who. <laughs> or like Kevin Sullivan suggesting that. Yeah. So I, again, I don't know that that's what happened. But when I heard that theory, I was like, God, that makes sense. Yeah. God. Oh, anyway, that's, that's, <laughs> boy, wrapping my head around that. <coughs> Meng hits the super kick, uh, aka the mafia kick. He covers Stevie Ray, but Mark Curtis is still distracted. Booker comes off the top rope with a springboard knee drop, which allows Stevie to escape the pin for one of his own. And Harlem Heat pick up the extremely overbooked victory. By the way, there's some really terrible camel work being done at the end of this match. Yeah. Barely see the Mafia kick, and whatever Booker does off the ropes, you miss the whole thing. Unless you're watching a version that was different than on the network. No, no, I was watching the network. You're right. You can just see him kind of start to go up, and then he comes in out of nowhere with the knee. But yeah, the exciting part is missed entirely. Because Booker goes to the opposite turnbuckle, and you sense that, like, oh, he's going to try to do the Harlem hangover. And then you right. see he kind of has to straddle the ropes because it's like, oh, it's a longer distance than it was meant to be. And and I was like, did he I, – I wondered if he did, like, a Harlem hangover all the way across the ring. I mean, you're suggesting it was a knee drop, but we have no idea what he hits. It could have been awesome, but we missed the whole thing. Uh, Mark Curtis, of course, fails to ask why everyone is covered in ashes. Right. 
After replays, Mean Gene is out for his weekly chat with Diamond Dallas Page, who is out with a sweet fanny pack. Thank you very much, Tony Schiavone, Larry Zabisco, Diamond Dallas Page on the heels of Starcade last night in neighboring Nashville. I wanted to bring you in. You know, you've got the bums rush from the NWO in recent weeks. You've declined, as far as I know. But then all of a sudden last night, big opportunity for you. And who should come and turn on you but Hall, Nash, the NWO. I'm very curious. What are you going to do about it? Don't worry about it. Well, I, it's not just me, Diamond Dallas Page. A lot of people want to know what you're going to do about it. Like I said, don't worry about it, Gene. Am I crying? I'm not crying about it. I'm a fixer. I'm going to fix things, and I'm going to move on. Well, there's got to be more to that. What do you mean specifically by fixing something? <sighs> Listen, Gene, sometimes people, they say to me I'm a little thick-headed. And maybe they're right. Maybe I am a little bit stubborn. And maybe sometimes, maybe I don't get it right away. You get dropped on your head, you get it. Wait a minute, they took, they, they deprived you perhaps of the biggest opportunity you've had thus far in your professional wrestling Listen, career. Gene, the NWO is too strong right now. I know what I gotta do, and I know what's gonna happen. What are you going to do, Mr. Page? Well, The NWO. Gene asks about the NWO attacking Page last night at the pay-per-view. Page tells him, don't worry about it. When pressed, Page says that he's going to fix things and move on. Page says that he didn't get it right away, but he was dropped on his head, and he gets it now. The NWO is too strong, and he knows what he's got to do. Gene asks, well, what are you going to do? And Page just says, the NWO, and wanders off. If it's uh, if it's starting something to happen in the next few weeks, I like the I like the ominous message that he's sending here, even though it's just yeah. like it's not very eloquently put. Um, yeah. But I like the idea of, of him like he's been resisting, been resisting. And then once he he had like his biggest wrestling match of his career, like the NWO fuck him because he would not join them. And now, yeah, he's, he's starting to sound like maybe reality is sinking in, especially since it's like, um, like the NWO has basically put a ceiling on how successful he could be. Right. NWO. Yeah. It's, I, I like it. I like, uh, it's interesting to see where they'll be going with this. Um, especially since, uh, it also means I'm Dallas page is dealing in a big storyline too, which is a, a plus. We come back to the hour two fanfare and Tony is now joined by Mike Tanay and Bobby Heenan. Bobby is asked by the internal friction in the NWO and says that their problem is that their leader, Hogan, is a liar, and any organization with a liar at the helm is in deep trouble. I I thought that was, like, a really good point by Bobby. It, like, wasn't funny. It wasn't, like, you know, hedonism. It was just like, oh, that's really, really good commentary on what could rot that organization from within. I liked it. Right, because, I mean, it, I mean you also don't really get the sense that... that... I, I feel like, especially um, with that opening, um, with them getting out of the limos and everything like that, I mean, Hogan's trying to say the right thing about, like, the NWO being, like, a brotherhood and all, everything. Yeah. But you also get the sense that, like, it's a brotherhood as long as he is, like, the top brother, pretty much. Right, yes. 
you definitely get the idea that like everything is cool as long as I have the belt. Even though he's saying that like if the NW has a belt, it's fine. But you really you can read between the lines pretty easily. Uh, Tony also hypes that Piper is in the building and ready to appear live later this evening. First, though, it's not COVID-19 that I'm suffering from, but rather a bad case of disco fever. <laughs> Topical. Was that what you had to you had to type that out to make sure you got it <laughs> just right? Disco is out in some kind of like a creamsicle colored silky outfit that I really, really liked. I <laughs> He's going to face Glacier in the ultimate battle of your blood either being too hot from fever or running too cold from exposure to a magic ancient helmet. <laughs> or or your normal if you hate the match. <laughs> Bobby talks about Glacier's different colored eyes and says that he's half man and half Siamese cat. He's bound to get over now. <laughs> right. By the way, I don't I don't know exactly when Disco Inferno starts doing like the the um kind of orange like you said creamsicle kind of orangish. Yeah. But I like for one thing, it's it's him finally saying like, "Well, I don't have to look exactly like the Saturday Night Fever guys all the time." Yeah, that's true. I can mix up the colors. And I thought like it felt like there was a lot more possibility to that than than he ever really like explored, because what maybe he wears black at some point I don't know, but it just seems like he could have added more colors and more options to what he wore. And once he saw saw it in cream, it's like oh right, it doesn't just have to be white all the time. <laughs> right. The bell rings, but before this one can get underway, Disco Inferno gets his hands on a microphone. He says that he's been working on a new leg hold the last two weeks and has now perfected it. He offers Glacier the chance to take the night off and just let Disco dance for the people. When Glacier doesn't jump at the chance, Disco gets cheap heat by saying he must be dumber than local hero Peyton Manning. Manning, currently in 96, the quarterback for the University of Tennessee Volunteers, was currently preparing for the Citrus Bowl to be held two days later on New Year's Day. And in spite of Disco's prediction that the Vols would lose that game, they instead went on to win 48-28, to with Peyton Manning being named the game's MVP. I'll show you, Disco Inferno. <laughs> Glacier interrupts the promo with a wrist lock with which he takes Disco to the mat. Disco says he's mad now and throws punches, all of which Glacier blocks, before Glacier strikes him to the mat with what's basically a Hadouken, minus the actual ball of fire coming out of his hands. Yeah, nice. A couple of hip tosses precede another wrist lock that Disco eventually reverses, but Glacier quickly reverses it again and lays in some kicks. The announcers keep saying that judging by Disco's recent Saturday night appearances, he doesn't actually seem to know how to apply this new leg lock that he's been trying out. So I guess that's a story they've been doing. He's trying to master a leg lock, and in these Saturday night matches, he's just failing to do it properly. Right, yep. <laughs> Disco starts trying to shoot for Glacier's legs, but his method of staring at Glacier's leg and then slowly diving forward is easily thwarted every time. <laughs> Glacier dodges an elbow drop and sweeps the leg, tripping Disco. He hits a jumping kick and then some more kicks and chops in the corner. He follows with a gut wrench suplex and tries the cryonic kick, but Disco hides behind referee Scott Dickinson. Glacier moves Dickinson to safety, but turns around into a Disco clothesline. Disco seizes on the chance and stops on Glacier a bit and slaps on a chin lock. His entire body is blackish from the ashes on the mat. Yeah, it sure is. This is, they definitely need, like, when you go see a Raw show and they, like, 
twice or maybe even three times during the show they just change the uh, canvas in like amazingly short time I always marvel at how quick those guys can get that done like there was no changing the canvas on the show it is what is out there is out there yes yep Disco tries to apply his new leg lock but partway through realizes that he's using the wrong leg he tries to switch to Glacier's other leg but that's given Glacier enough time to recover and so Glacier kicks him right in the chin after a little more back and forth, Disco hits the spinning neckbreaker, but wastes time dancing on the second rope with his back to Glacier. When he turns around, Glacier hits him with a super kick for three, suggesting that perhaps the super kick is now the finisher that he uses. Uh, maybe that's the cryotic kick. Uh, I'm not sure because he finished the match with the super kick, but earlier he did go for the traditional spinning cryotic kick. But I know, like, I just know over Glacier's career that kind of it goes back and forth between the two for what the karate kick is. So I, I just don't know at this point what his finisher is supposed to be. Or maybe it's just a matter of timing as far as like, he just does it a different way. Yeah. I thought this was fine. Um, mm. But like, it is definitely clear that the glacier stuff is less over each time he comes out. I, I've been surprised, and I think I've said so more or less every time. I've been surprised at actually how much I like it. Yeah. But it is clear that I'm in the minority and that the crowd is pretty much tuned out of the entire Glacier deal. Yeah, and also, I feel like um, maybe one of the problems was like when he was being built up initially, it was it was basically like a hundred percent Glacier, and I don't know, just maybe just facing someone like Disco Inferno and having trouble not putting him away in a minute just yeah. look a lot less effective. And I thought that was kind of the biggest attribute of his was that he was just so dominant. Sure. Once he's not dominant, then really what, I mean, is he just a gimmick then? Or I don't know. I'm also always amazed that, uh, that they never like fully utilized Disco Inferno doing the swinging netbreaker as like his finisher on a regular basis. Cause it's, easily the move he executes the best right yeah i agree i think i mean i think there ends up being a time in which it is his finisher but it seems like why didn't they just go with that in the first place right i mean i know there's also this gimmick of him not knowing this leg lock which i feel like could be funny once or twice but it will probably drag on for like six months or something like that. it definitely seems like something that would be better suited to a saturday night exclusive storyline Right, yeah. Afterward, we see some stills that try to make sense of all the nuttiness that took place at the end of the Benoit versus Jarrett match from last night. Then Benoit comes out with woman wearing her sexy red and black tux outfit that I always enjoy. And also Bobby Heenan does because he is like... (laughs) His opponent tonight is Chris Jericho. Uh, These guys have faced each other before in WCW, I believe on pay-per-view. Uh... And as we mentioned, that it was Benoit who got Bischoff to bring Jericho in, and they're they're very friendly. And here to call all the action is my friend Dave. <laughs> nice. I will do anything to find a transition into those intros now. <laughs> Even if you're not a hundred percent confident, you just got to roll with it. <laughs> That's right. So Chris Jericho is quick on the offense, hitting both a springboard dropkick and a missile dropkick from the top turnbuckle to the arena floor. Uh, at this point, I note that the charcoal is getting everywhere on everyone. Back in the ring, Jericho attempts a hurricanrana, but Benoit catches him with a stun gun on the top rope. 
This match is full of counters, which are mixed in with both men trying to cave in each other's chests with chops. I mean, both of them are laying it on thick tonight. And you get the idea, like, if they're friends and they're trying to one-up each other on these chops, because they are just, like, laying them thick. They also punch away at each other. Then Jericho drops Benoit to the mat long enough to attempt the lion salt, but the crippler moves out of the way. They spend the next few minutes in the corner throttling each other with punches before Jericho uh, hits a cross body block from the top rope, but he had too much momentum and couldn't hold a cover. Uh, Jericho whips Benoit into the corner but misses what looks like a flying knee. Anyway, it makes him land on the top rope. Initially, I think the announcers also thought that uh, Benoit was going to kind of like drop him into a tree of woe, but instead Benoit goes to the top rope and hits a belly-to-back suplex, which gets him the pinfall victory. Uh, so this is, again, a very quick match, uh, a very intense match between the two, and uh, yeah, we get a, a pretty sudden uh, result out of this of Benoit winning. Yeah, it does kind of come out of nowhere. Uh, yeah, I it was fine. I, I mean, you know, it was a good it was a good match. It was better than I think most of the other matches as far as wrestling action goes. Yeah, I mean, I think we're I mean we're we're learning pretty quickly here that there is a, a lot of matches happening tonight. Yes, a lot of them are going to be short, and I think that every wrestler is made aware of this, and they're like they're trying to maximize the time that they have when they have like two or three minutes pretty much to, to showcase themselves. It's now time for our weekly horseman bullshit as Mean Gene is in the aisle with Flair, Mongo, and Deborah. I think, Tony, there is one exception. I do not see Arn Anderson here. Okay. Huh. Please, Rick Flair. I lose this guy every now and then. Last night there seemed to be a little disorganization or perhaps miscommunication within the ranks of the four horsemen. It involved Chris Benoit. Steve Maga McMichael, you had an opportunity to see that. The Nature Boy Ric Flair was watching on television. Deborah, I just want to say, woman, I am so glad you're, I have missed you, girl. I was just talking about you last night, how much I missed you. You know, you two need to keep your mouth shut. You don't have a vote here. You haven't been here long enough. Do you understand? Just keep your mouth shut. Listen to it. Listen to it. It'll be the day when a skirt like you tells Mongo what to do. Wait a minute, Jeff Jarrett all of a sudden. Gene, it looks like the ladies out here are creating a few more problems than they're solving. But I want to talk about a problem, Rick. When I came into World Championship Wrestling, you said I was the man. You said I could walk the walk and talk the talk to lead the four horsemen, not only just to lead the four horsemen, but to unite WCW. And last night, I had this man beat one-on-one, -on -one, and Arn Anderson drops me on my head. He's your right-hand man, right? Hey, speaking of Arn Anderson, where is your best friend, huh? Where is he? Where is he? Huh? Now you're talking about something I can communicate on. You, of all people, are asking me where Double A is on New Year's Eve. Eve, he's over at the Hyatt with another light in his hand so cold. Woo! It'll freeze the hand off an Eskimo. So, baby, light up the cameras. Woo! Turn down the lights. The horseman. <laughs> 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 he's trying to lighten 
everybody up. And uh, Deborah, I don't know if you get that feeling. Jared, you proved yourself last night. You can be anything but a horseman. Uh-oh. Oh, that is a very strong, very strong statement. Try sort that out, Deborah. anyway. I don't know. You know, I've been thinking about this, and I finally figured out one woman's so upset. She just got up all these built-up hostilities because of her weight gain over the holiday season. And you know, oh. Steve, it's a good thing I got between oh, you and Chris, because you were going to kill that little boy. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, throwing... Oh, mean Gene! Let's get the horsemen doing what they do best, and that's staying all night. Uh -huh. Woo! And staying a little longer. Come on, Deborah. Thank you. Oh, yeah. I don't know if... Uh, there is entire happiness within the ranks of the four horsemen. Thank you very much, Mr. McMichael. Gentlemen, ladies, a wild night here on Nitro as we close out 1997. Stay tuned, we are going to be back. When asked about the miscommunications last night, Deborah banks on woman having not watched the last several Nitros or Starcade, as she claims to have missed woman. She's like, oh, I was just saying last night that I missed you. Like, that was fucking televised we can check woman can see what happened yeah woman tells the mcmichaels to keep their mouths shut mongo calls her both toots and a skirt because it's 1950 and that <laughs> makes benoit angry <laughs> flair tries to keep the peace but then jeff jared interrupts for some weak both ciderism as he's just like as far as i can tell both these women are causing all the problems Whereas, like, again, woman is not causing any problems. It is 100% Deborah being a bitch. Right. Uh, Jarrett then says he, he asked Rick about the way that Rick endorsed him, but how the other horsemen have failed to follow suit. Jarrett and woman press Flair about the location of Arn Anderson. Flair says that Arn is over getting drunk at the Hyatt because it's New Year's Eve Eve. <laughs> flair dances with woman he just like kind of blows everyone off and does his normal like flair i'm shouting and i'm dancing with woman mm -hmm. and everyone literally everyone on the stage smiles and laughs like all their squabbles that have lasted for the past several months are forgotten instantly because the nature boy is being fun and likable like it's cheesy but it also is like in a weird way wholesome just to see how much all these people like you're like, God, the horsemen have hated each other for a while. Why are they even a group? And then you just see they're all just like, God, I love Ric Flair. And that's the reason That's the reason they're still a group. <laughs> right. I do, like that, I do like the idea of, uh, where's Arn? Oh, he's getting hammered at the Marriott. Yeah. <laughs> like, why? why? Why is he not at Nitro? Why is he not at the, at the one show? Well, no, it's New Year's. It's New Year's Eve, Eve, Dave. Come on. All right. It's okay. the seventeenth biggest party day of the year. <laughs> right. And Arn Anderson's getting smashed by himself. <laughs> Benoit says that Jarrett proved himself last night and that he can be anything, anything but a horseman. Oh, you. With that, ben <laughs> with that, Benoit. Benoit and woman leave, and Deborah says that woman is just sad because of her weight game over the holiday season. What a bitch! Flair still doesn't give a shit about any of this. He <laughs> sings, everyone smiles again, and that's the segment. It's, it always seems like that the Flair's like, I know people were saying some things, I don't know what those words were, but now it's my turn to talk. Gosh, it seems like everyone's mad, but have you watched me dance in a while? <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know what this hubbub's all about. 
After a commercial, Lee Marshall's Road Report comes to us live from Monroe, Louisiana, where he is enjoying gumbo at some place called Sputnik's. Now, this is a little inside joke by Marshall, as Sputnik Monroe was the gimmick name of 1950s and 60s star Roscoe Monroe Brumbaugh, who is perhaps best remembered today for desegregating Memphis wrestling, as basically he got super popular and then refused to appear on shows that segregated their audiences. Uh, so yeah, Sputnik Monroe, uh, really one of the, uh, just a great story in wrestling history. Just a, a dude who looked out for his fellow man. So cheers to you, Sputnik Monroe. All right. Marshall makes some other Louisiana specific references, you know, gumbo, etouffee, you know, right. Mardi Gras, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Now it's time for the minis match, and I didn't really mention it through my notes, uh, just because like I I I don't like the word midget, and that's what Tony is is using consistently. Yeah. But if you took a, if you played a drinking game where you took a drink every time tonight, Tony hyped up the minis match, you would be plastered by this point. Yeah, you would be Arn Anderson at the Hyatt Bar levels of plastered. Right. There was a point um, earlier on where the, the camera went back to the announcer's table and they just talked about the minis match coming up. Yes. And they were excited. Again, they didn't. They kept saying midgets, um, which I think I think we just as fans kind of got used to them being called minis anyway. Yeah, minis seems like, I mean, it, it seems like the talent is fine with minis. So, you know, if that's what they want, then that's what I'm comfortable with. Um, so yeah, minis I'm fine with midgets. Yeah, we, they don't like that. We got, there's other words. Right. <laughs> For, now this is a tag match and first out are Octagon Aceto and Masquerita Sagrada. Tanae says that it is all of these men's, uh, WCW debut, but that three of the four wrestlers were on the When Worlds Collide pay-per-view that Turner promoted in 94 that oh. had like AAA. Um, I think that was the one that Jericho was on. That kind of got him a foot in the door with some of this stuff, uh, but yeah, that was that was not a WCW event, but it did have WCW participation and promotion. Gotcha. Now, uh, as I try to do like biographies for these guys, it's a little confusing because there's for a lot of them, there's been multiple guys with this gimmick. Sure. And a lot of the internet sources I could tell were like confusing one for the other as to like Wikipedia is talking about this guy, but he wasn't the one in '96, so. I'm a little vague on exactly some of these guys' backstory, so I'll, I'll just be honest with that up front. Especially Octagon Aceto, that was the toughest one. I believe this is the original one. This this original Octagon Aceto would be replaced pretty quickly after by the guy who was, in 1996, La Parquita, the mini version of La Parca. Okay. And La Parquita will coincidentally be making his U.S. debut at the WWF's Royal Rumble in, like, three or four weeks' time. Yeah, I, f- and I feel like he he has a, he has like a decent run of like having a few WWF matches. Yes. Yeah. Yep. I, I the, definitely I recognize the the outfit when he when he came down and like oh yeah that, he's the guy that was in WWF for a while. This is also the original Masquerita Sagrada. He is thirty one years old and from Zacatecas, 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 Mexico. He debuted in 1989, worked in CMLL until 1992, and then followed Antonio Pena to Pena's brand new AAA. He will also appear at the WWF's Royal Rumble, though not until the 1998 edition. 
Uh, next out is the team of Harito Estrada and Paratita Morgan. Harito Estrada is a 30-year-old luchador who debuted in 1991. Uh, he was given his ring name, uh, same with all these guys, I should say. All of them are like, they're a mini version of a different luchador who is also in AAA's gimmick. So there's like Octagon, so that's Octagon Aceto. I forget what the original, uh, ma- I think it's Mascara Sagrada, and that's Mascarita Sagrada. Uh, Jerry Estrada is the, the I don't I don't want to say normal. I don't the regular sized, the the larger version. Yeah. Uh, of Harito Estrada, uh, Jerry Estrada is also on the 1997 Royal Rumble card. It just assigned it how weird it is. All this like WCW and WWF using Mex- a bunch of luchadors at like the exact same time. So you've got the mini version on WCW on Nitro, and then you have the. Uh, larger luchador version on the 97 rumble card it's just so weird (laughs) now piratita morgan which means pirate morgan he debuted in 1979 and he is one of the earliest members of the mini estela or mini star division he was a smaller version of pirata morgan a pirate gimmick he had a long-running feud with mascarita sagrada and both men were part of 1995's triple mania 13-man steel cage elimination match, which was the first and only time that the mini-division main-evented AAA's biggest show of the year. Wow. He is also a part of that 1998 Royal Rumble's mini-match, so he's another guy who is going to appear in both feds over the next couple years. Now, as they make their way to the ring, and for the most part during the match, with a couple of notable exceptions, Bobby Heenan says nothing. In a shoot interview, uh, and I couldn't find the exact one, but I found uh, multiple descriptions of the shoot interview. Now, it's possible that Bobby's talking about a different match. I don't know how many minis matches he called in WCW, but he talks about a match with featuring minis, including one dressed like a pirate, so I believe it's this one. Yeah. He says that before Nitro, when they're kind of giving him his notes, they told him, all right, Bobby, you're going to have four Mexican little people out there, and one of them is going to be dressed like a pirate, we need you to take it seriously and not make any jokes. Okay. And Heenan says that at that point he realized that no matter how long he had been there, these WCW guys still just had no clue who the Bobby Heenan character was or what they were supposed to do with him. Yeah. <laughs> now, in that shoot interview, he says that the way he handled it was to just say nothing the entire match. That's not an accurate memory, though. He uh, he actually marks out in a few moments and just like, you know, says like, whoa, or whatever. Yeah. And towards the end, he does make a few of the jokes that you would kind of expect him to make. To start the match, Estrada charges with a pre-bell attack, but ends up eating turnbuckle when his opponents dodge. After an Irish whip, Estrada throws Octagon Aceto up in the air and tries to catch him with a move on the way down. But Octagon Aceto turns it into a lucha style arm drag. Octagon Aceto catches Herido Estrada again with a back body drop, and Sagrada comes in with a top rope splash. This is a Lucha-style tag match where, like, tagging in and out just is not important. You just come in when you feel like it. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's just the way they do it in their tag matches in Mexico, so no, no big deal there. After it, that splash... It does confuse uh, <laughs> Tony Schiavone, though. Cause Tony, that's true. Tony Schiavone's like... I, I, I guess they're just uh, gonna do what they want pretty much like yeah yeah I, he, he yeah that's right he was not he was not really following that that was 
part of the thing, but he wasn't like uh, up in arms, but he was just kind of like, oh, okay, I guess that's how this is. <laughs> right. So it seemed like either either he didn't have like complete notes or he really wasn't paying attention to his notes because that kind of caught him by surprise too. After that splash, Peritina Morgan tries to catch Sagrada with a senton, but Sagrada dodges. The baby faces get in some cool flying pin moves for two. The heels isolate Octagon Aceto as Heenan says it looks like a riot in a daycare center. So he's 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 woken back up. Yeah. Uh <laughs> Tanae, Mike Tanae has to actively suppress laughter at that one. He's like trying to call the match, but he is trying also not to laugh after that comment. Yeah. After some back and forth, Sagrada gets a head scissors on Estrada, as Tanae tells us that at five feet, Estrada is the tallest person in the match, and that five feet is actually the max height for the mini division. Okay. Estrada also stands out because he is the one member of the match who does not have uh, what is known as disproportionate dwarfism. Yes. Um, where, like, little people often have legs and, and arms at a different proportion as people without dwarfism. Yep. Estrada doesn't have that, and at five feet... I don't think even technically he's a dwarf. I think he's just a very, very short man of standard uh, genetics. I think he's just very short. Yeah, I, I, when I kept seeing him in the ring, I kept, I, I was wondering, I mean, it obviously sounds like in, in Mexican wrestling that there is like a lot to be gained wrestling in the minis division. Yeah. I, I'm just curious of a guy like him who is like, I mean, he's probably like, well, I'm not that much shorter than Rey Mysterio Jr., how come I'm like in the minis division, but like the way you've been describing it. And when you see like, like for decades, they've consistently had minis wrestlers. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's not, there's not, it doesn't look like a demotion or, or like a lower level of wrestling in Mexico. Yeah. Whereas in America, it's different. Like it's, yeah, there was a brief time and I, I'm sure they made jokes. Don't get me wrong, but there was a brief time. Wasn't there in like 2000, two or three where SmackDown had a minis division that was taken somewhat seriously, at least as far as like the matches go. It wasn't just comedy and silliness. Wasn't there like a somewhat serious minis division for a hot second on SmackDown? I, I don't remember. Well, tweet at us or uh, email the show. If you remember that, let me know if that was not a fever dream of my imagination. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, let's see. Where was I in the match? Well, let's just start here. Morgan and Octagon Aceto take over in the ring. Octagon Aceto tries a kick. Morgan catches the leg, and Octagon Aceto backflips himself free. Estrada comes in and holds Octagon Aceto so Morgan can hit him, but Octagon Aceto gets his legs up and kicks Morgan down and then pushes Estrada into Morgan, who out of habit hip-tosses his own partner. He's just like, oh, someone got pushed into me. I better hip-toss them. Oh, yeah. Uh, Octagon Aceto then kicks the leg out of a charging Estrada, which causes Estrada to drop kick his own partner. So we're doing like some comedy spots of Octagon Aceto forcing them to attack each other. Mm -hmm. After some awkward hesitation, Sagrada gets a victory roll out of nowhere for the win. Uh, there's, yeah, there's just a little sloppiness towards the end. I, I skipped over some of the stuff just because there's like four guys flying around. I actually like, in spite of maybe my description, I thought, for these like three minutes i thought this was fine this was like it was fun and the thing that i think it, it really has that makes it worthwhile is it's totally different like there's nothing else like this on nitro and uh, i don't think it really goes anywhere i don't think we have a minis division to to speak of now but 
uh, I see like there would have been value in having one. It was it was a fun, uh, fun thing to have, and I think like where it really would fit in is if you've got like a time where you've got, um, you know, two very big main event matches with very serious feuds, and then you do one on the pay per view, and whatever comes after that is going to kind of be the death spot. Like rather than have it be a death spot, throw it a minis match. It's gonna, it's definitely gonna get over. It's gonna be completely different, and the crowd's gonna have fun watching that before you go in with like your other big serious main event match. Yeah, just just my thought. Um, a quick look on the old internet here says that um, WWE did have a juniors division on SmackDown from uh, late 2005 to March 2006. So only like okay. months. But that did result in hiring uh, Dylan Postel, who is uh, better known as Hornswoggle. Oh, sure. I think I might be wrong, but I think, and maybe I'll look it up while you talk about the next match, but I think one or two of the guys that were just in the tag match we we just reviewed were a part of that division. Oh, sure. Yeah, Uh, that would not be surprising at all. It does seem like that, um, that, because like WCW and WWF seem to use a handful of like the same guys. So right. maybe, I don't know if that's go if that's harkening all the way back to like the guys that Conan would speak on behalf of or, or exactly what that is. But um, I wouldn't be surprised if like, cause it's like what five or six years later that like they come back to the guys that like, Oh, we've worked with them before sort of thing. Right. Before we go to a commercial, Heenan entertains himself one last time by saying, we're going to take a short break. Ah, uh... yeah. And when we come back, we are locked and loaded for Dean Malenko as without a second to spare, like, they are in the ring, no entrances, we're back, here's the bell. Uh, there is just not a second to spare on this show, apparently. But here to call all the action is my spare second, Dave Amantorp. Yeah, I wrote, I wrote yikes, because we're, we come back for break and the bell rings for the match. Yes, yes. Uh, we begin with both men twisting each other up in leg locks, with neither competitor gaining the advantage. Rey Mysterio sends Malenko scurrying to the outside, and he comes off the ropes for what is basically a baseball slide through the first and second rope, which he turns into a hurricanrana. I just made a note that I don't feel like I've seen a hurricanrana execute like that before until this point. Uh, Malenko takes his time to recuperate and get back into the ring. And the time to clear his head uh, seems to have worked as he quickly gains advantage with the surfboard. Rey Mysterio tries to gain the advantage, but Malenko is relentless as he hits his fireman's carry into a gut buster right in the middle of the ring. When a lateral press cover does not get the three count, Malenko admonishes Rey Mysterio as he really leans into a single leg Boston Crab. A Rey Mysterio springboard dropkick has little effect on the Iceman, who resumes his punishment of his smaller adversary by holding him in a backbreaker on his knee. Rey finally seizes the advantage in the corner, drilling Malenko with forearms. Uh, Malenko throws him off, and when Rey uh, charges for another Hurricanrana, Dean tosses him over his head. Uh, This toss over the head appears to be... Like the result should be Ray landing on top of the on the top rope on his feet, uh, but he does slip and he gets crotched instead. Uh, both men struggle back to their feet, where another Hurricanrana attempt by Ray is countered. This time with Malenko flattening him with a power bomb for two. Malenko levels Mysterio with a clothesline and a body slam, but when he scales the ropes, Mysterio knocks him out of the ring with a spin wheel kick. 
I'm just, uh, just I'm just interjecting here just before I forget. Uh, Octagon Aceto and Masquerita Sagrada were part of the SmackDown Juniors division. Oh, okay. So probably like the guys we probably would have guessed. Yep. Uh, spin wheel kick. Mysterio then goes to the top and he leaps over the ring post, crashing down a, a Malenko and what appeared to be at least an attempt for her Karana, but instead he just kind of lands on top of Malenko. And there's a few moments there where Malenko has uh, a hand on his head, on his face. It seems like he might have got his bell rung or something like that because I think his head's hurting a bit. Sure. Uh, back in the ring, Mysterio attempts his uh, springboard, her Karana finisher, but Malenko catches him with a Boston Crab. The two then trade a series of pinfall attempts, none of which gain a pinfall victory. Malenko then hits a sidewalk slam, but Mysterio recovers in time to hit a top rope her Karana. At that moment, the bell suddenly rings, as the 10-minute time limit that we were not aware of has uh, expired, I guess. So, just like that, this match ends in a draw. I mean, obviously, it's Rey Mysterio versus Dean Blanco, so it's a really good match. Um, I feel like it, it is... Uh, there, there's some moments that aren't executed 100%, but, I mean, there's a little bit... Like, at this point in his career, there's a bit of give and take with Mysterio, uh, sometimes he's not going to hit everything 100% accurate. Um, but him and Lenko still do a lot of magic in the ring, and I felt like this match was was going really well up to the point at which they do the time limit expiration. I'm just not sure exactly what we are expected to gain from a time limit exp- expiring. I agree. <laughs> yeah, I think you, you summed up really well. We come back from a commercial break, and out to the ring comes a hot dog that rolled under the fridge nine months ago. Oh, wait, that's Greg Valentine. Oh. He's here to take on Lex Luger, who Tony reminds us defeated the Giant last night. Luger is put over strong by the announcers and gets a great reaction from the crowd. He is especially beloved by that old lady who you always see at WCW shows. She's always, like, in one of the front rows. She's wearing a black sweater. Uh, She's, like, taking swings at Hogan. She's uh-huh. just like, she's all over WCW shows. I don't know where she's based, because it seems like we've seen her in multiple venues. It must be in the South somewhere, but she made it to Knoxville. Hammer takes control early with his usual boring strike-based offense before applying a chin lock. Lex gets a couple shots in, but Valentine stays in control. You know how sometimes you see a meme of, like, a shitty Spider-Man from some kid's birthday party in like the Congo or Iran or somewhere. Yeah. This match is sort of seeing like Lex Luger fight the third world birthday party version of himself. (laughs) Oh, like the ad is a picture of Lex Luger and you, you call the number and get it booked and then it shows up and it's Greg Valentine. And it's like, like, well, maybe the kids young enough kids won't tell the difference. It's like the, the picture of Lex Luger is expectation and Greg Valentine is reality. Yeah, you, uh, yeah, it's a picture of Greg Valentine. It says you, and then it's a picture of Lex Luger, and it says the guy she tells you not to worry about. Right. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> and in our attempts to make fun of him, we're not saying that we are him. I mean, I'm a lot closer to Greg Valentine than I am Lex Luger, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, fair enough. I would. <laughs> I think most of us are... We're more Greg Valentine around here than we are Lex Luger. I mean, hey, to, to be frank with you, like, I got a lot of work to do just to get to Greg Valentine level. <laughs> so, I guess, you know, maybe I'm in a glass house just 
chucking rocks as hard as I can. <laughs> right. But you know what? You're still going to throw those goddamn rocks. <laughs> anyway, Lex finally punches and kicks his way into control before felling the hammer with a running clothesline. A second run at Valentine is less impactful as the hammer dodges and throws Luger to the outside, where they brawl briefly before again brawling on the apron when Valentine prevents Luger from entering the ring. After a bit, Valentine, a leather keychain found in the hand of a meth addict's sun-bleached corpse, oh. tries to suplex Luger back into the ring. <laughs> I like your reaction to that. But Lex manages to land on his feet and quickly applies the torture rack for the submission win. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Lex. A quick victory for Lex, but he sold way too much, in my opinion. Like, I know Lex doesn't have a ton of offense that he does, so he always ends up selling even in his, what, like, is a Lex squash match. He even is, he usually is the one selling. Yeah. Uh, But I just thought, like, it's it's Valentine. He shouldn't be doing this much. It's it's crazy. Yeah, I, honestly, I was not paying a whole lot of attention to this match. I mean, the only thing I really was noted was, like, he almost he basically did like a torture rack out of nowhere, you know. Right. What to, I was like, oh, that I mean, that would be an interesting uh, a wrinkle into Luger if he was like capable of just hitting the torture rack rather than like calling for it all the time and letting his opponent know when it's coming. Yeah. Able to just suddenly let, just slap on the torture rack at any given time, I think it would make it a, a little bit more compelling to be watching his matches. We go to commercial with the promise that Roddy Piper will be on the show next. And indeed, when we come back, Piper's music plays and the Knoxville fans give him a nice reception. There are 14 goddamn minutes left, so I am expecting some real nonsense to happen. You're right. Uh, hello. I appreciate it. He's touched. Everyone standing Thank you very much. Chanting Roddy. Thank you very much. I have, if I may, uh, just like a few minutes of your time to explain something where I'm going at. The greatest fans in the world, man. I heard Eric Bischoff and Hogan. Uh, I, I think the WCW has set a new precedence. There is life on Mars. Because that's where they must have been last night. Because where I was, Hogan was in a sleeper going. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I am proud that history reads I am the icon. And I am proud, I am proud that for the last 20th century in my sport, I have been the brave heart. I've been wearing this doggone thing since I've been five. You either got to be tough or stupid. And it's like this. I want to, you know, folks, that was my last fight, man. <laughs> I'm getting too old for this. <laughs> oh, man. I want to tell you something, though. It was very important to me to have this fight not only for my pride. Didn't you know this was going to happen? Yeah. 
Piper gets on the mic, puts over the fans, and says that Hogan and Bischoff must be living on Mars based on their comments earlier, because from where he was sitting last night, it sure seemed like Hogan was out cold in the sleeper hold. Piper is proud that history will now read that he is the icon. He calls himself the brave heart of wrestling for wearing his kilt. Piper says last night was his last fight. He's getting too old for this. He tries to continue, but the NWO music hits. Look at the eyes. He's street smart. He's watching every move they're making. Bischoff carrying the belt for Hogan. And listen to the chant of Roddy. Hey, it ain't going down that way. You're a liar, Piper. Tell them how I dogged you, man. How you dogged me? The only way I've seen you be a dog is when you wee-wee on the fire hydrant. Brother, I am the icon. It is history. You gotta smell it, eat it, and poop it. No fear. You know something, man? You're a lucky, lucky person. Because shut up. Shut up. You know something? These people are planning your destiny if they don't shut their mouths. But I'm going to tell you one thing. You guys are missing it. Why don't you tell your people to shut up? I got something real important to tell you. Ho, ho, ho. You know what, folks? Every dog has his day. Let's hear some orf, orf. Come on, Lassie, talk. No, you don't understand. Brother, you got something to say? Say it, damn it. You better shut him up. This is about your family, boy. Uh Uh-oh. The only reason after I beat your brains out that I didn't end it for good was your son begged me. Take it easy on Pops. That, that he shouldn't have said. Then let's do it one more time. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Right. Here we go. Piper said that was his last one. I think that's not the case. I think he's got one more. Oh, oh no. Oh, my goodness. Oh, no. The troops are here. Oh! It's Hole and Nash at six. And Hogan and Bischoff. The Outsiders, the NWO. We saw him here. Out strut Hollywood Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff. They get in the ring and the crowd chants for Piper. Hogan calls Piper a liar and demands that Roddy tell everyone about how Hogan dogged him last night. Piper says the only way that Hogan is a dog is when he wee-wees on the fire hydrant. Oh, Roddy. Then he calls himself the icon and says that Hogan needs to breathe it, smell it, and poop it. (laughs) What? That's what he said. We got wee-wee and poop in subsequent sentences. He was the the, uh, foreshadowing of John Cena. (laughs) 
Hogan says the only reason he didn't murder Piper last night was because Piper's son begged him to take it easy. That gets to Piper, who throws his jacket down in D-shirts. Nash, Hall, and Six run to the ring, wallop Piper from behind, and the beatdown is on. The NWO beats on Piper as trash rains down. Hogan chokes Piper as the giant slowly ambles his way to the ring. Scott Norton is now there, and he joins the massacre. The rest of the NWO lift up Piper and drop him sternum first on Norton's knee. Ouch. Hogan, yeah. (laughs) Hogan brings a chair to the ring and lays it right into Piper's artificial hip. Hogan then calls over the Giant, who so far has not struck Roddy. The NWO demanded chokeslam for the Giant, so he goozles Piper, but is slow to lift him, seeming perhaps conflicted. Suddenly, Nick Patrick shows up. He's wearing an NWO shirt? So... Like, we always knew he was in the NWO. He would just lie and pretend he wasn't. When did he just officially join? When did he wear a shirt and just be so open about it? Do we have any idea? Um, I mean, I felt I felt like there was something during Starcade that were like, oh, yeah, he's definitely NWO now. Um, and he didn't officiate any matches tonight, as far as I remember. Yeah, that's true. So maybe I think maybe now is just like the first moment that he's doing this. Which would be crazy, because there's already too much happening in this segment. Yes. If this is also what we're supposed to, you know, the payoff for that, like, is he or isn't he? If that's this, that's nuts. Yeah. The Giant eventually drops Piper to the ground, and Hogan is not pleased. You guys be cool. I got this. He's my brother. Okay, look. What's your deal, man? You know the deal. You dropped the ball, man. You dropped the ball. Okay? You dropped the ball again. You're dealing with Hollywood. I'm your brother at the NWO. Last night was one strike. Right now with Piper is two. Bottom line is three strikes. 30 strikes. Shot, man. Better man wins. I didn't know it meant that much to oh. Okay. Oh, man. I'm sorry. Get him! Get him! Get him! Uh-oh. Get him. The Indians are surrounding the wagon now. Hulk huddles with the rest of the NWO and gestures towards the giant as a stretcher is brought out for Piper. Hogan gets a mic and asks what the deal is. 
He says about a thousand more times that Giant dropped the ball, something he said a bunch last night. He said a bunch tonight. I'm really tired of hearing the drop the ball thing. As Hogan tries to talk, you can also hear Piper shouting out gibberish, uh, which... Literal gibberish. Well, that's interesting, because according to Dave Meltzer in the Wrestling Observer newsletter, this is supposed to be Gaelic and plays into Piper's eventual return. Huh. It's supposed to be like... He got beat, and he's having, like, flashbacks to growing up in Scotland, and he's yelling Gaelic, and he's going to, like, go rediscover his roots and come back or something. Okay. I think that kind of gets scrapped, and they end up doing the Alcatraz stuff instead, but I will, yeah. we'll have to find out. We'll, we'll find out. Well, it'd be like, I, I would say to Big Dave, it's like, okay, if it's Gaelic, then what's he saying? Well, I don't think Dave is, I think somebody told Dave Meltzer that, so he was like, hey, I'm passing on. I don't think he's, like pretending to know Gaelic. Yeah. Hogan talks to the giant and suddenly slaps him in the face, saying that now it's three strikes. Now, the first would be dropping the ball last night. The second would be not chokeslamming Piper. I don't know what the third strike is exactly. Well, the third strike is him hitting the giant. It's a little... Actually, it doesn't make sense. Okay, that's sure. Indicating is the third strike <laughs> is the strike that I'm... Ah... The giant goozles Hogan, and the NWO stands back as if, like, holding a man by the neck is the same as having a gun to his head. They sure act like it is. Yeah. Piper is still shouting his nonsense over all of this, keep in mind. Yep. The giant demands that everyone leave the ring. We then cut to a shot of Piper on the stretcher yelling as he's being let out. Back. We go back to the ring, which now only contains the giant and Hogan. Giant screams at Hogan demanding the title shot he was promised. Hogan sobs and apologizes. He says he loves the giant and offers his hand out in friendship. They shake, and Hogan says the giant will get his title shot and leaves the ring. Hogan then immediately sends the NWO in to attack the giant. Giant throws off Bagwell, chokeslams Vincent, chokeslams fake Sting, but the numbers overwhelm him, and he eventually gets beat down, eventually eating some very weak belt shots to the back from Hulk Hogan. Yeah. They rip off the Giants NWO shirt and hold him still on his knees for Hogan to hit one final belt shot to the face. Hogan sits on the chest of the unconscious Giant, slaps him around, and says that this is his belt. We then get a shot of the ambulance leaving with Piper as the show closes. That segment was too long and it was very muddled because they were trying to do two very different, not very different, but two completely separate stories. You had... Yeah. The NWO beats down Piper. Piper goes insane and yells gibberish and gets stretchered out. And then the NWO kicks out the giant and the giant manages to get a title shot. And then they beat him up some more. Like there was just way too much going on. I think they really would have benefited by picking one or the other and dealing with the other storyline the next week. Or, or just, or, or just cutting down how they get to the point where it's like being a Piper and having the giant go chokeslam him. But instead just have him choke slam Hogan and then the NWO beats him down. Just, yeah. I mean, for one thing, it's like, just get the microphone out of Hogan's hands. Cause he's not, yes. he's just going to repeat the same stuff. And right. I, I feel like they could have gotten this, this across a lot, uh, a lot quicker by just, just having it be action and not like Hogan delivering. Like, just, I don't know. It just, yeah, it is very, like you said, it's very muddled, and 
it just seems like that they, they could have been a much cleaner way of uh, doing this. It also just kind of gets to like, and we, we've brought this up before, you know, that there are some circumstances where some amount of scripting is not the end of the world. Yes. Uh, if you just give Hogan a mic and bullet points, he just rambles and says the same things over and over again. Right. And meanwhile, there's like, there's no cohesive direction so that's why you have stuff like Piper yelling over the other stuff that's happening because there's just no one who's like really clearly producing and then this happens and yeah. you don't do your thing until this happens. So everyone's just kind of left to their own devices. They're all doing, you know, they know overall what they're supposed to do, but they don't know the order in which it happens or and they don't always know how to improv off of each other. And so segments like this sometimes just become a real mess. Uh, because of that yeah and it could be because like the person that has the most capability of producing it eric bischoff is literally in the ring yeah whereas maybe if he was backstage helping out with like uh making sure one camera should be doing what or just someone having a little bit more responsibility of knowing like what when we should be focusing on something i mean like i mean the whole thing of piper being structured out he could just be structured out. We don't have to have any follow-up. Right. Or, or address... there. Or there's some things that could just be addressed the next week. Like having the NWO attack the Giant and then talk about next week how he want, how he's going to get the title match. Instead right. of all that information trying to be provided in like a 10-minute like a segment. All right. Well, that does close our show. So I think it's time to ask, Dave, what did you think of this Nitro as a whole? I thought it was a very, um, I thought it was, for the most part it was really good. Um, I like the idea of having these short, um, high action matches. We had a lot of matches that featured a wide, the widest variety of talent they've ever, I think, ever done on a Nitro. Because you've had like cruiserweights, you had uh, big man wrestling, you had tag team. You had minis wrestling as well. Like there was, a, we saw like almost as, all the talent that they'd like to show every week on one Nitro. And and there, I think there could be a real advantage to having a bunch of like three or four minute matches once, like once the talent kind of gets used to like having to do these quick matches. Um, and there's, I mean, there's a lot of uh, storyline progression going on, uh, which seems... Like it, typically it seems like they just kind of react to the pay-per-view the next night. Whereas it seems like they're already setting up like a giant versus Hogan match. Sure. Which uh, I think is a, is a far more significant match to have than Hogan versus Piper since Piper might be there just for the, for the one starcade. Whereas I, I, I mean, from the beginning, when Hogan joined the NWO, I've been saying that the giant is the, the number one legitimate threat to Hogan. Yes. Um, I mean, we'll have to wait and see how this develops. I honestly don't remember how and when, or if the giant actually gets this title match. So that'll be interesting to see. Maybe it's on the pay-per-view. I, I meant, I know I mentioned before that I'm literally, ne- this is one of the pay-per-views in history of WCW I've never seen. So I don't even really remember what the card looks like if they have the match or not. Um, but I know, I think it was a really, it was a really entertaining show. It had like high, it had some lows, you know, but I felt like 
if you're tuning into Nitro to see what WCW is about, you got the full gamut of matches that you could possibly ask for. And you saw like every wrestler you could possibly want to see. Uh, yeah. Nitro. Yeah. Uh, I think you make good points and there are things to like about this show. Um, I think for me, you know, I get brought down by the fact that I think that main event was a mess. Um, and I'm also frustrated because like, I think you've got, you've got kind of a rare opportunity to present something really special uh, to American audiences with Liger versus Dragon, and that just gets, like, three minutes. Um, Like, why am I watching them get held to three minutes, and then I'm watching Kensuke Sasaki versus Hugh Morris? Sure, yeah. Um, Or why am I, you know, or the, the rematch of the Canadians and Public Enemy. I don't need to see Public Enemy at all, ever again, right. and probably ditto for the French for the French Canadians. Sure. Um, and so, like, that's you know, it's a little frustrating to to like have you know two all time greats out there in a match that does not happen in America very much. You know, now it's two thousand twenty, and we can just watch all the matches they ever had. We can find them online, basically. You know. Um, but the fact that in 1996, that would have been a really special thing. And I think it'd be really frustrating that you, you know, that's what you got of it. So, uh, I, I, that, those things I think bring the nitro down. So I'm not quite as enthused as you, I'd rather have maybe six or seven matches, um, that breathe a little bit more than having, I think it was 10 on this show and some of them are so short. Um, so that's just my personal feeling. I I'm for having short. I mean, 10 is a lot. Um, maybe like seven or eight might work a little bit better. Just cutting a couple of them back. But again, I think it's, it's perfectly fine to have, uh, a handful of like shorter matches. So you're seeing more talent. Um, I, yeah. And I think the ones that cut are also pretty obvious too. Yeah. Yes. Like Sasaki versus Hugh Morris and there's like those two tag team matches in which like the storylines can be played out in either of those tag team matches. So they could cut either one of those and not have any effect really. Right. The amazing French Canadians against Harlem Heat, you know, then you get, you get everything you wanted from, from both of those matches in just one. Um, but no, I, I, I mean, I thought it was, a um, an entertaining nitro. Um, and I like the idea of i mean kind of addressing piper and not saying like oh he's gone forever or or doing something that's like okay you're not going to get an immediate rematch between the two but be aware that they still there's still their possibility of a rematch yeah um and then getting this this match with the giant starting up i like the idea of having that happen right i mean instead of uh dragging out for weeks of uh Oh, is the giant pissed or is he not pissed or whatever? Just taking care of it the next night, I think, is a is a good way to handle it too. All right. Well, uh, with all that said, I think there's just one thing left, and that is to determine our match or segment of the night and our MVP. Let's start with MVP. I think we normally do segment of the night. Let's switch it up. Let's do MVP. Uh, my MVP. I found it really hard because there was just 
so much going on and so many people flitting in and out for like short little parts. Yeah. Uh, but I'm giving mine to the giant because I thought he had really, really great intensity in that last part. Like, you know, it was, it, it was a little silly that he held off 12 guys by choking Hogan, but like, it is believable that this giant effing guy is just like furious and no one wants to mess with him, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought that was pretty cool. I thought he, you know, had a good fire, good conviction, but behind his lines and stuff. So yeah, for lack of, of anyone that I thought stood out anymore, I'm going to go ahead and give mine to the giant. Well, I mean, we're on the same wavelength here. Cause I gave mine to the giant as well. Ah, uh, what? Well, I believe this is his first MVP win, so it's interesting he picked it. You know, it was unanimous. Yeah, well, I mean, again, I think that he is. Um, when you when you try to think about like the the future of WCW, like it's him. Like he's the he's like the big young talent that has shown that he has capabilities beyond just being the big man. Like he's. Yeah. Shown- agility and i feel like that he there's a potential there for his personality to come out yeah more of an opportunity and i think getting away from hogan being not at his side is going to be helpful for him because i feel like hogan uh just tends to to kind of step all over people's lines and talk over them and it just is not helpful for the giant to have another just a loud mouth next to him when he needs to kind of like grow on his own, as far as a personality is concerned. Sure. Him finally getting back to being a legitimate big threat in WCW, I think is just a net benefit for WCW in general. Absolutely. Again, I think we both kind of really covered from the very beginning of how, like what a dumb idea was to put him into the NWO, how it just didn't seem to work for him, how he was just kind of like a really forgotten talent. And now that he is like thrust himself, not only is he back in the picture, but he did it on his own. He thrust himself into the title picture and, and they made him look like a legitimate threat by needing the whole NWO to, to beat him down. So I felt like overnight he went from losing his match to Luger and looking just kind of pathetic to now being like the legitimate number one threat in WCW and like the one guy that can stop the NWO, like, Easily, the Giant is the MVP, in my opinion. Right. All right, well, with our MVP set, uh, what was your segment of the night? Well, that's that's a little bit tougher. I mean, like, I think it's easy to just say Dean Malenko versus Rey Mysterio Jr. Um, just, you know, I feel like I just got to say that. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it's a lot of thought put into it because... Anytime they wrestle, they're going to have a really great match. But, um, yeah, there wasn't there wasn't anything else that stood out that was, like, clearly better than that match, in my opinion. Um, so I'm going to give mine to Dean Malenko versus Rey Mysterio Jr. All right. Well, for mine, uh, I'm going with one that uh, I didn't think was technically – it was not the most technically sound match. Uh, it did not feature, like, necessarily the best action, but – because it was so different to anything that I'm used to seeing and and I enjoyed it so much and and like I said I really see where there could have been a home for this on a wrestling show and it's almost disappointing that they didn't go more in this direction I'm giving mine to the minis match okay yeah I, uh, I just that was like it just stood out so much from anything else happening in American wrestling mm-hmm. in 1996 uh, as we you know close out the year here 
uh, yeah, I, I thought it was great. That was my segment of the night. I also, I mean, I feel like that match, if anything, that suffered from was from the announcers not quite knowing how to announce it. Sure, absolutely. Which is kind of weird because Mike Tanay is there, and you would think that Tanay would have a better idea. But also, I mean, he has like two pretty big uh, personalities next to him that kind of right. He kind of uh, Tanay will need to step up and be more of like a prominent voice during those matches. I think that when he when there's like a three person announced team, he kind of just adds his two cents when he feels like there's room to do so. Um, but I feel like with the, something like the minis, if they just um, if the announcers get used to like how they wrestle and the rules and things like that, it could be a lot more effective. Sure. That's going to be it for this Nitro from us. Uh, do just want to say, you know, before we close here that uh, I hope everyone is, is certainly taking this stuff seriously. You know, I get on Twitter sometimes and I see, you know, these pictures of like people still just out in malls and out in parks and they're like crammed in. And it's just insane to me that, uh, you know, here I'm living in, I have not left my house since Tuesday, my wife since even earlier than that. Uh, and, and I understand that that's not like a sustainable thing forever, but like the more people that can do it now and do it for a while, the better off we're all going to be. So just if, 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 uh, you've listened to our show and you enjoy us at all, and you think that we're worth listening to in even the slightest, I'm just begging you to please do as much as you can to practice social distancing, isolate yourself as much as possible, uh, stay healthy and stay safe, everybody. It's just, it's very important. Um, and yeah, I mean, you can also be, you can also, you can go out of your house, just be safe and responsible about it. Yeah. Uh, for, for example, I went out for like a long uh, walk today and, and I was like, well, I need to know I need to stay six feet away from anyone that walks by. But the thing that was really nice and really um, reassuring was that everyone I walked by was prepared to do the distancing when they yes. started approaching. Everyone, at least in my area, everyone is aware of that. So it's like as long as you are, are being safe and responsible and being smart about it. Yeah, like I, I like I mean, I know a lot of restaurants and a lot of like really big social places are not open anyways but right. if you're going to be going somewhere like that is just to to know to like follow whatever rules they have and follow whatever the um, experts are suggesting you do too uh, i mean just because you can all cram together and go to a bar or something like that doesn't mean you really should all right. With all that said, the only the, the, the last thing I'll say about any of this Corona stuff for now is that uh, as we are stuck in our homes uh, and, and we do, you know, feel a little bit of uh, even responsibility. I it might be too strong a word, but but we want to we want to help entertain you guys. We want to you know, if, if there's anyone who, uh, you know, will have a couple hours made better by listening to us talk about Nitro. Uh, that's something that, like, I consider like a, it's an honor, really. And so we will. Uh, we're going to uh, make an effort to try to record every, like, I think you had suggested maybe five days, something like that. Yeah. Um, so we're going to, yeah, we're going to work very hard to try to record a lot of episodes during this period where things are so, so goddamn shitty. Uh, so, yeah, so we're going to try that. So we'll be back with you in just a few days with our worldwide episode. And and I've been thinking, you know, since we're going to be trying so much, like, maybe we'll do something. We'll, we'll cover a Saturday night or we'll... We'll talk a lot more about that uh, January 4th show at the Tokyo Dome. We'll try to find some new and different things in addition to the WCW coverage that you all know and love. Yeah, well, uh, 
I thought that like uh, for the worldwide, because the worldwide is kind of a little bit more of an open format, is that right. Um, my my hope is to watch the Tokyo Dome show and maybe discuss it a little bit on worldwide because there's a lot there are implications as far as like WCW roster wrestlers that are on there and and especially like you know Ultimo Dragon versus Juice Thunder Liger it's something that's mentioned on Nitro it was right at Starcade like it's gonna be something they'll mention the next I would assume the next week on Nitro to some degree. Uh, I don't. I mean, maybe depending on what the result is, maybe they won't. Who knows? But um, no, I feel like that is a. Uh, there's a lot of WCW ties into that show, and also since I do have New Japan World anyway, and I do like a reason to watch old New Japan. Like they built a reason for me to do it now, so I'm like, okay, okay, you win, I'll watch it. So I, I feel like that we might, you might get a little bit more of a. Uh, of an extended summary as far as what happens on that show. Yeah. All right. Well, you can look for all of that right here where the big boys play. 20 years of Nitro. It's like a riot at a daycare center. <laughs> Nonstop action from the mini superstars.